I would like your input on a new affectation that I'm considering. Because I think you're, you're the one that I, I need the input from. Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, so, so sometimes, you know, like, like, for example, today. Today's a good example of this. Today, I'm doing a lot of things with, um, <clears throat> I'm de-rusting, I'm polishing, I'm debriding. I'm doing a lot of things with, with, uh, with vinegar and with ammonia and with de-ruster and a whole bunch of things. And, and it just it doesn't matter why. It's just a thing that I do. I like, I like polishing metal. Um, but you know, when you're using a Dremel or similar, you get a lot of splatter. And so I've started wearing an apron when I, um, when I do metal things so far, so good. Mm -hmm, If you did metal things, you'd probably wear an apron, right? Hmm. I don't think I would, but go on. Would you wear nitrile gloves? Maybe. Mm -hmm. I would wear eye protection. That's for sure. Oh, when you're dremeling real hard, there are sparks. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that this is also what Mr. Miyazaki does. It may be a different apron, but yeah, I don't know. Well, we'll get to right. we'll get to that. But 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 so I got an apron now. I got an apron at the office. Wait, uh, oh, speaking of that, what do you think his apron is for? I think his apron may be for the same reason as my apron. Sparks? Sparks? <laughs> I don't think there's a lot. I mean, he draws fast, but not that fast. Well, also, you know, he smokes. Okay, so, but no, so what do you think the apron is for, though? Well, I mean, I think, you know, okay, so I don't know. I, but it, it doesn't, do lots of people wear aprons there, or is it only Mr. Miyazaki? I think it's only him. When I say it that way, it sounds like the guy from Danielson. That's, that's Mr. Miyagi, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't see aprons. Mm-hmm. But then it occurred to me that, you know... Uh, maybe I, I see. Okay. So let me, let me just pull it all together here. Cause it's really, it's going well so far. My thought is when you get to work and you put on the apron, you know, you're working. Now this is a thing in Japan. There's a thing in Japan. I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard you can wear a sash and the sash lets people know you, you're only like, it's need to know, need to interrupt basis. Like I'm super busy. I'm wearing the sash. I don't do this all the time. In another age, maybe headphones. Like I hope headphones are still respected. But, you know, now everybody wears headphones, so it's not the same. But, like, I feel like this could be a good affectation for me. I'm not sure that I will become the genius who keeps retiring title. Um, but, but when I arrive at work, should I put on an apron so I know it's time to work? Hmm. So. Take it anywhere you want. You can, you can, you can, you can, you can go nuts. You can make fun of me. You can suggest still- a better affectation, maybe. Mm-hmm. The reason I asked about what Miyazaki's apron is for is I was getting at what is your apron for? Because your work, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, yes. is not predominantly about dremeling. Mm, I mean, it's hard to say, you know? You're always... No, it's not. Um, it's, not it's not hard to say. It's a little hard to say. No, because... it, your work is not primarily, primarily about dremeling. Okay, well, I thought when I made... Uh, uh, well, what was my first one? I'm trying to think of the first thing I ever put on the web in probably 1994 or five. And it was, I don't know, I want to say a Beach Boys fan site, but I don't think that's what it was. I think it was just, I made a page of stuff that I like, right? And, but the thing is, if I hadn't learned how to make web pages, who knows, right? You know, moments snap, snap together like magnets. I, I don't know if I'd ended up doing different things that I, that I do, because you never know what's going to turn into the next thing. I'm just saying, I'm not ruling out dremeling, but I take your point. Right now, it seems extraneous to the recording of podcasts where I have to be constrained by my hosts because I have a very uh, 
discursive uh, mode of speaking. Oh, sh- I'm not, you know, should I put the apron on? I don't have it on right now. Should I put it on? Maybe you'd notice a difference. I don't think you should. Like I said, the reason I was asking about the Miyazaki thing is like, does the apron serve a purpose? And is that purpose, do you have a purpose? That, like, are you doing a thing in work in which an apron is useful? Therefore, you putting it on to signal that you're going to work makes some kind of sense. I'm not I mean, sure those need to be related, but I do they take do your point. do need to be related. Otherwise, why okay. not put on a chef's hat? Like, I mean, it's just, you know, like, why not? You why mean not like, a, like, a, a, like, a, like a, what's it called? A, a, a toque? You mean like a, or like one of those tall? Like, like, like a, a, big, chef, uh, a chef like boy a, looks, like a, looks like a stovepipe hat with a big puff on the top of it, you know? Okay, that's one. I've got Anyway, I, I did hat. some brief okay. research on, on Miyazaki's apron. Yeah, you know what so, you're going to find? You're going to find a lot of aprons with Totoro on it. No, no, no. Go look at your, go look at messages. I thought he had like a white one, but I don't think his has pockets and I really so want pockets. So in that first image, you see him uh, bowing and saying uh, thank you. And then they, don't they do exercises together? Wearing an apron, right? Uh-huh. But no one else in that picture is wearing an apron. Not but true. Now the, Not true. The woman in the background picture, is wearing an apron. The, the second picture. No, that, you think that one's wearing a black apron? I don't think so. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Oh, I see what you're saying. The second one, we see probably two aprons. Yeah, the second one, they're doing their exercises and we see two aprons. So my theory about what the apron is for, it's for people doing pencil work and so mm-hmm. they don't get like graphite crap on their clothes. Okay. That's that's the best I've got. Or paint, obviously. Paint, well, you know, there's like, also those things, I think this might be a Scrivener kind of thing where like you had these like, I want to say not a sleeve exactly and not exactly a gauntlet, but I think there's these things and maybe this is along the lines of the green visor that we associate with, uh, I don't know, blackjack dealers and accountants. <laughs> but I'm a terrible guy to buy voices record. But um, I, I, but you, there's things that you can do to, to protect yourself so you don't get ink on yourself or so you don't get pencils on yourself. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I imagine they're doing it because Mr. Miyazaki does it. I don't know if that makes him angry. Um, but, but, you know, and he does smoke. But, but I just thought, here's what I like about the affectation. And I mean, it's a little bit like, do I need a walking cane? I'm probably but not totally yet. But like, it's a nice affectation. You show up. It's like, think about Mr. Rogers. He, he gets home. He talks to the camera and he puts on his, uh, his tennis yeah, shoes. Yeah, I was going to mention that because Mr. Rogers is a good example of a non-occupation specific signaling thing. Although his, in theory, I mean, I don't remember the details of Mr. Rogers' uh, transformation. Oh, but in I theory, do. I do. In theory, he is uh, putting on more comfortable versions of the clothes that he already had he on. Puts, he now puts he's on a sweater. Home. He wears mm-hmm. it over his necktie. And then he, he throws his shoes from one hand to the other. He always mm-hmm. does it the same way. And then he puts on his, his tennis shoes and he, if memory serves, he, he greets you and he's happy that you're with him. Right. And so like he's putting on equivalent items of clothing that probably are more comfortable because the Mr. Rogers show, the premise was that he was at his home. And so he's come from, I don't know where it's, it's literally his neighbor. His it's literally his neighborhood, John. He, he's come from work and now he's home. And so he's putting on something more comfortable. So it seems to me that maybe you should arrive at your office and put on something less comfortable, take okay. off your sweatpants and your loafers and put on like a hair shirt. <sighs> and You know you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, I think I do. Uh, something that says it's, it's, it's work time for daddy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you know, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but you know, man lives in Pittsburgh. He's got a television show. I mean, is, is that a costume right with me? You know, when I put on the apron, which is definitely an affectation, it feels a little bit like a costume and maybe in the fullness of time when I get a chef hat or similar, maybe you could, maybe you could suggest some other affectations that might be useful in getting me into the groove for whatever my work is. 
I mean, I wouldn't try. I wouldn't do anything that would mess up your mobility or like anything having to do with your person. If you just want a ritual to signal that you're here to work, there's lots of other things that you could do that don't involve strapping something to your body. Also, it'd be hard to get the headphones over the chef's hat. Yeah, you'd have to wear them like, you know, downward facing style. Mm-hmm, like in yoga. Okay, All right. well, wait, if, I, if I you have, have other ideas, you know, let me know. I'm, no, I'm continuing to be, so. You're three-dotting me. You're three-dotting me here. What are you sending me? Speaking of affectations, I don't know. I think I just actually hit, hit the space bar in the, in the text field. Uh, but take a look at this. Now this is a little bit more baffling. Some updates. I'll put the link to the, where I'm getting these uh, images from the show. It's a trailer to one of the many uh, documentaries about uh, Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki. Oh, look at this look picture. At look at this picture. Do you see what's going on here? I do. It looks like Mr. Miyazaki and another man are in what I'm guessing is a recording studio. He's got a microphone and what looks like maybe a script. And he mm-hmm. is wearing an apron. Now, now this is like, okay, maybe the recording studio is in the same building. He's got his apron on. Hey, you got to come down, uh, Mr. Miyazaki. We're going to, we want you to do something and record something for two seconds. So come down here. And he's still got his apron on because otherwise it makes no sense that he comes in for a day, a long day of work in the, in the, uh, you know, dialogue recording minds or whatever he's doing. And he wears an apron. I don't know, man. I think, I think you've been out the business too long. You know, I think yeah. you've, I think you've lost track of, of the kinds of, sort of um, existential compensatory muscles that one needs to get in into the mode. Now, do you have anything like that? Do you have anything where like jokes of one foot out the door? What, what, um, do you have things like that where you're like, you go into a mode, whether that's for video games or, or for your programming or, or your podcasting or any of that stuff? Do you have things where like, you know, it's happening because, you know, like maybe you're going on vacation. So you wear the dad hat or something like that. Do you have, do you think anything like that? I'm guessing you probably don't. In terms of like uh, clothing that I change for these modes? Well, I mean, like uh, the obvious example is that, you know, work from home has become more widespread and normal for obvious reasons over the last few years. But, you know, people used to say, oh, God, there's this woman. Oh, my God. Why am I even mentioning this? She's, She's called Fly Lady. And Fly Lady, you can Google it. She's probably, I don't know if she's alive, but like she was this. She had this whole site that was, it was kind of like hacks and tips for people who are, who have never been adequately diagnosed with depression. And it was a lot of stuff about like how to clean your house, but it also had this element of like, there's, it was very emotional. Uh, when people would say nice things to her, she would make what she called purple puddles, which means that she cried. And, and she says her big thing was dress to shoes. Every morning you got to dress to shoes which I think is good advice for somebody who's undiagnosed. Every morning you have to dress to shoes? Dress to shoes. And what she's saying is you get all the way dressed, including putting on shoes. And she says every day you should clean your sink with, um, with cleaner and a sponge. And like, that's that, this is like a a form of self care. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So I still think about that. I still think about that when you're working from home, like back in the day, it used to be like, Oh, it's so hard. You're used to being in an office and everyone's, screaming and like now you're at home alone where it's quiet and you got to get dressed and ready for work you don't have anything like that i'm guessing not really i mean i don't i I don't want to get into less comfortable clothes when i do things i certainly have mental mode switches when i'm doing things but that relies on uh, environmental factors that don't have anything to do with me like if i want to do some serious video game thing it really helps for them to be no one else in the house because otherwise mm-hmm. people will come and uh, that's like me and seasoning me. my that's me and seasoning my pans yeah well yeah. the difference with the video game thing is 
with the video with the seasoning of the pans, they don't want to be there because it'll annoy them, and you don't want to hear them saying, "Oh, what's that smell? I don't like all this smell." Like you don't want to hear them hassling you. That's about the it, smell right? of all the food I've made you in the past. Right, but uh, but Tears but in rain. the end, like they they'll complain, but uh, the the pan will continue to season. The video game problem is it requires my attention, and if they if my attention needs to be elsewhere, it has ruined the video game thing. Like it, mm-hmm. the video game does not continue without me. I can't, unlike the season Japan. It's nice to, it's one of those things that's nice to disappear into. And if you're doing, so you're talking about destiny, like doing some kind of a raid thing with the group. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. It's like a revenge for my childhood. It's, it's so people who don't play modern video games, maybe don't know this, but most, uh, many popular, uh, modern video games, what they call a live game, which it means many different things. But one of the things that it means is that you have to be online to play mm-hmm. and that you're playing with other people and that uh, most saliently, there is no pause button. Oh, you can't like save your game and go do something else. No, you can't pause because other people are involved. Sure, right? sure. You, like, yeah. you can't pause them like be frozen in time or whatever. So there is literally no pause button. And a lot of these games, especially when they involve other people, have fairly draconian penalties if you bail in the middle of something. Right. Because right. they want right. to discourage that behavior because that is, human nature is such a like, if, say it's a competitive thing and you're doing a thing, uh, you know, it's it's well, uh, you're letting the team down kind of right. Not just that, but like, you know, I was going to say human nature, but let's say uh, teenage boy nature that if you're losing, you go, oh, forget this. And you just quit. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So mm-hmm. they have to build things into the game that say, hey, if you do that, we will ban you from the game for 24 hours. Oh, my. OK. Because otherwise, every time you played a game, as soon as you started to win, some uh you know kid on the other team would have a tantrum and then that team would be down a person and then it would snowball and it makes it miserable for everybody right because now you're now you're outnumbered and now it's just right. and, and you know you know what you're in for you know the rules and so consequently you're not going to get super involved in a big joining michael lop on some crazy destiny raid if you know there's a pretty good chance that like daisy hasn't gone out or somebody's going to need the router or there's literally fix. anyone else home and the, and the worst thing is because this is because of the way these games are made even when I'm doing something solo, no other people involved. It's just me and, you know, the computer. I'm trying to do a hard level. You have to go through this dungeon and beat all these people and find a boss and beat him, right? Just mm-hmm. me, a single person. I still can't pause. Mm. You can't pause the game. So if someone says, hey, can you take out the garbage? Oh, I'll just throw away the hour and a half of, of work I, I uh, took to get here to go throw away the garbage. Because if you leave the game idle, they will boot you out of the thing and you have to start all over again. So you mm-hmm. can't pause. And if you get up and leave, setting aside that you'll, your character will die. Who cares? You can always respawn. They'll boot you back, what they say in Destiny. They'll, they'll send you back to orbit when if you've been idle too long. Oh, wow. So the mode I have to be in for playing video games is no one else in the house. Okay. Except for like, you know, small pickup stuff that it doesn't matter when you. If I got you an apron, do you think you'd give that a try? I, that's what I'm saying. I don't think the apron would help. I don't think mm. the apron solves mm-hmm. the problem. It's kind of, kind of like the apron doesn't help you with the with the seasoning in the pan thing. You mm-hmm. put on the apron to do it. Other people still complain about the fumes. Yeah, it's true. Speaking of uh, of uh, cooking and stuff, are you are you up on the uh, gas stove discourse? I just saw a link today. Mm-hmm. I think we're it's not really, going to be able really to cook. Really gaining steam, so well, to speak. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to cook anymore. <laughs> um, do you have Do you have a gas stove or, or a gas stove that works? talk about it offline um it's an exciting time <laughs> all right well um thank let me, you let me, let me circle back to apron mm-hmm. so two more apron images check your messages i see one it looks like an outdoor shot oh look at that and that's somebody walking around with little kids and she's wearing an apron she is wearing an apron is she wearing an apron because little kids get messy stuff on you and she doesn't want to get messy stuff on her clothes is she wearing an apron because she's one of the animators or background painters who's out walking the kids mm-hmm. i don't 
So there's Apron. And then now the final one. It looks like Mr. Miyazaki is in a model home. No, he's in his house. That's his house. That's his house? He's in his house. And he's wearing the apron. Okay. I, I, uh, the apron I love. But like, why is there nothing in his house? It's not nothing in his house. That's his ca- he's Japanese. They're neat. <laughs> You're telling me this is the kitchen. Marie that- Kondo. Come on. Mm. This is the kitchen that he cooks in? Yeah, he makes it like as I posted one of my one of my better tweets and one of my one of the tweets that amuses me. Let's say let's not call them better. Let's not be let's not no. p- pass judgment. Let's just say one of my tweets that I uh, was the most amused by uh, was I posted a screenshot from I think this documentary, maybe another one, and uh, the text was, uh, "Does Mister I don't say I said Mister Miyazaki, but whatever fits for our current conversation. Does Mister Miyazaki make himself a cup of coffee in a Totoro mug? You goddamn right he does." <laughs> And he, sh- it's, it, you'll see him making himself some coffee in a Totoro mug. Mm. Does does your band come out wearing their own T-shirt? If you're Hayao Miyazaki, yeah, you make coffee in a Totoro mug. What are you going to say about it? Oh, I, I totally agree. It's a different culture. I don't know. Um, I, I, I really enjoy him. So, is he currently retired or not? Do you have a way of knowing? I believe he is currently not retired. Okay, but he's retiring right after he finishes what he's doing. This is it. He's done now, right? After this, and, yeah. he's Presumably finished. he will die eventually, but we'll see. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you by Squarespace. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com slash diffs. Friends, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform for building your brand and for growing your business online. You can stand out with a beautiful website, you can engage with your audience, and, and you can sell anything, your products, your services, even the stuff that you create. Whatever it is you want to do, Squarespace has got you covered. Uh, you know, you can sell your products on an online store, okay? This is, this is a big deal, so listen closely. So whether you sell physical things or digital things, Squarespace has the tools that you need to start selling online. Now, you, you can't tell these young people today you know, this is a big deal, uh, having a store. This, this is this is not a given. It, it's a really big deal that you can do that, and Squarespace is just giving it to you. Seems a little crazy to me, but... You can get started with the best-in-class website template, and then you customize it to fit your own needs. It really is as easy as browsing the category of your business to find a perfect starting place, and then you can customize it with just a few clicks, just a few drags. Bob is literally your uncle. Uh, maybe you all know. Well, you should know. I wish you'd know that I have I have a soft spot for for weblogs or blogs. Well, Squarespace does too. They have powerful blogging tools to share stories, photos, videos, updates. You'll be able to categorize, share, and even schedule your posts to make your stuff work for you. I'm a huge fan of Squarespace. This is not news, but I like to just mention it. I've been with them for oh, pretty long time. I think my Squarespace site is very likely older than my kid, which is complicated. Uh, but that's where Roderick Online is. That's where my personal sites are. Uh, maybe most saliently for you, the listener, is that Squarespace is, is my go-to recommendation for anybody who wants a home on the web. Get yourself out of the webmaster business by getting yourself into Squarespace. So would you please, would you would, would you do me do me a favor? Would you go to squarespace.com slash diffs? That's D-A-F-F-S. It's going to get you a free trial. Okay. No credit cards required. Okay. When, when you're ready to launch, use our extremely special offer code diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. And that's going to save you 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Uh, personally, I would suggest you buy several websites and several domains. Um, they didn't tell us to say that, but, you know, I, I think in some ways uh, you legitimately cannot afford not to. It's 10%. It's a lot of percent. And, and the more you spend, the more you win. 
they can just have that. Once again, it's squarespace.com slash diffs. And when you decide to sign up, use that offer code diffs. I'm saying it twice. It's almost like praying. It's going to get you 10% off your first purchase, and it will show your support for reconcilable differences uh, for independent programming and and for the the increasingly desperate John Syracuse. Um, he has a lot more problems than he admits, as you probably suspect. Um Squarespace. You go to squarespace.com slash diffs. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting reconcilable differences and all of Relay FM. <sighs> Thank you, John. I, I need I need something. I need something. Yeah, okay. All right, fine. All right. Um, hello and welcome. This is reconcilable differences. Um, let's just get right to it. We've got some follow-up. I gotta let you uh how much detail do you want on this? That's what I'm gonna say to you. Okay. Second. I am going to not make any noises and I'm not going to recoil. I'm going to handle this very, very well. Number one, I want all of the details about your toe update. That's number one. All of these, I'm asking you how much detail do you want me to go into? I could, I I think the listeners to this show, you owe it to them to tell them what what the hell is going on with your toe. I don't know if I'm asking you how much detail I can give the executive summary. I could give the like, the minute play-by-play, like we don't have that much can. to talk about tonight. I don't we think sure do. we have to, we have tons of stuff. I don't know about that, but um, John, you um, <laughs> 2022 was a tough year for your toes. I was trying to describe this to my kid how you had two different things happen with toes, and they were like, is it is it fair to say that they were, as far as we know at this point, excluding something like spooky action at a distance, that your two different toe things were not related. There was not one malady that caused two cattywampus toes. One more more cattywampus than the other, but you got two different toe problems, right? Yeah, well, I think it was 2020 into 20. It was it's multiple years. It's oh, not really? just 2022. Yeah. And okay. and I I mentioned this to my toe doctor today. So there should be some <laughs> there should be some kind of paper done about me because no one has an explanation for this like spontaneous bilateral Latin word for toe, Latin word for bad thing that's happening with me because yeah like something bad was happened to one of my toes which was explicable and it's like the other toe saw what was going on in the other half of the body and was like hey i'll take a crack i'm gonna say digitalis horribilis yeah like uh, spontaneous bilateral digital that sounds like it sounds like a harry potter spell sorry i can't do it (laughs) um okay so you had a consultation with the toe doctor today how are your toes doing john so it seems like this is my life now like the schedule is that my toes are, you know, weird, and that I ignore them until some critical mass is met. Uh, and the critical mass for me, for my the, the toe that I had dealt with today, was uh, it starts, its appearance is changing. That's one. Mm-hmm. But if it was just the appearance changing, I'd be like, eh, whatever. And also, I start to feel it, like pain, you know, any mm-hmm. any kind of feeling, a feeling combined with a visual change, those two things equal. <sighs> I gotta go to the doctor again because I'm perfectly fine to ignore it and just let it go if it's just like, oh, it's ugly, but it doesn't bother me. Or if it bothers me, but I look at it and it looks fine, I'm like, ah, maybe it's a little bothering you, but it looks fine. It looks healthy, it'll be fine. But both of them combine, looking funny, you know, and the appearance is changing over time and it starts to bother me. I have to go to that. And the reason I go is because it takes a while to get an appointment. And I don't want to wake up one morning like with a toothache where like, oh, it's bothering me a little. And you wake up one day and it's just like really painful. I don't want to wake up one day with like my toe rotting off and I have to go to the ER. 
-hmm. So the second I get sort of a critical mass of like something's going on down there and it's looking worse instead of better over time, let's not wait until this becomes, you know, a an urgent issue. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go to urgent care. I don't want to go to the ER. I don't want to do any of that. Mm-mm. And I'd have no idea which day I'll go to sleep and wake up and my toe will be, you know, it'll have come to a head. So I made an appointment for the toe doctor again. And this has happened so many times. All of my toe things have been like this. Ignore it, ignore it, ignore it until it seems like can't ignore it anymore. Make an appointment, wait a week for the appointment, hoping that during that week it doesn't decide to go bad and then go. So mm-hmm. quick question. Um, mm-hmm. A phrase I've learned from my wife, um, sometimes, you know, before you make an appointment, you can call I, I don't know if this is a, a term from the industry, an invite, advice nurse, where like you can call and even in the pre-Zoom, you know, pre-pandemic days, you could call and like some, you could say, it was really great for stuff like my kid has a fever of, let's say 101, which sounds like a lot, but by little kid standards, it's not that bad. But like you can call and say like, is this anything I need to worry about? Do I need to pursue this? Is Do you go straight to scheduling an in-person appointment or do you have a way, do you have like an interlock, in, interlock, there's not, a, there's not a pun on toe that I can find. Do you have somebody that you could speak to who could say like, don't worry, John, it, it looks weird and hurts, but it's no big deal. Do you, or do you just go straight to like knowing to go to the toe doctor? In toe, in toe locator. How about that? That's what I was looking for. That's eh, not great. You were, you were wise to, to pass on it. Yeah. Um, so uh, interestingly, the very, very, very first toe thing uh, was during COVID times, like 2020 ish. Uh, during prime COVID time, let's say, because we're still in COVID times, of course. Um, and I did make a telehealth appointment with my my regular, you know, my GP, my my uh, primary care doctor, uh, because my toe was, you know, was feeling bad and looking kind of red and puffy. And that was a telehealth appointment. And I pointed my iPhone at my toe and said, what do you think of this? What's going on here? Did you warn him first? Uh, it's she. Uh, and she said, well, I mean, whomever, but did you, do you like, let them know just FYI toe, uh, toe photo incoming. It's video. It's video. It's a telehealth appointment. Like, oh, it was, it's, they, it's, tel- it's telehealth. Yeah. I was instructed. Hey, let's, let's see what we're, we're dealing with here. And mm-hmm. the first go-to move of the, of my regular doctor was of course, maybe you've got something that's infected, have some antibiotics. So it's red and puffy. It looks infected, right? So here's some antibiotics. We'll see if that knocks that out. Uh, and it didn't. And then the next move was you should see a podiatrist. And that that's start off the whole thing. But for seeing the, my podiatrist, my very first podiatrist appointment was also point your iPhone at your toe. What do you think of this? And that's remember I told you back in the day. That's what my podiatrist, my, my old private podiatrist who has since retired. Ugh. I've already burned through one of these guys. Yeah. Um, said. Oh, yeah, that toenail's going to have to come off. Do you remember that whole thing? Yes. That was a telehealth appointment. Just by looking at it, they said, oh, yeah, no, that, that toenail's going to have to come off. And I, at that point, was resistant. I was like, what do you mean come off? You're not taking part of my body off. It's fine. It'll be fine. What do you think? It'll be fine. Can I wait this out? How long? And he's like, oh, sure, you can do X, you can do this Y. This is long before we ever got to the, the oh, I forget which toe is which, which is to my credit, I think. But mm-hmm. then at one point, you had the thing of like, before it even grew in Cattywampus, you had the thing of like, should we cut this thing off altogether or do you want to take a chance? Well, well that was, this is, this, yeah, this is all before that, but this was him just saying okay. that's going to have to come off and me being in denial about it. And then sure, eventually, sure, sure. You know, anyway, so the point is, I did used to do uh, those first few ones. It was, it was telehealth because no one was, you know, it was no vaccines or anything and everyone's kind of staying away from each other um, to see what the deal was. Uh, but since then, now I 
kind of know what the deal is. I do not have a preliminary telehealth thing to get them a thumbs up, a thumbs down. I just make the appointment and I just say, uh, I think X needs to be done. So I need an appointment for X and I make an appointment for X. Last time I made an appointment because now I just basically I just make an appointment. I say I, I need to make an appointment with Dr. So-and-so to have a toenail removed. Like that's the appointment. Okay. Okay. And there's, there's a word for it, which you don't need to know because it will haunt your dreams. But, um, is it end with ectomy? It does. <laughs> oh, is it, is it all Latin? No, I, no you said, I don't want to know. So I probably, what yeah, is exactly. it? What's the word? Um, but last time I made that appointment, mm. uh, it was for, it was for my quote unquote good toenail. The one that originally was fine, but, but, but died out of sympathy. Um, last time I went in, <laughs> I made the appointment to have it removed. And the new guy, then because my old guy retired, the new guy looked at it and said, you know what? I know you made an appointment to have that thing taken off, but I don't think it needs to be taken off. I know it's painful, but it's just because you've got such and such here and let me deal with that and let me do this. And I think you should be fine and sent me on my way. That was like nine months ago. Right. And it yeah. turns and it did that did fix the immediate problem because it was hurting and he did a thing and it fixed it and it wasn't hurting anymore. But nine months have gone by oh, and no. this thing is just getting worse again. And, and I so I made the appointment again. This, I'm sorry, just real quick, though. Is this the one that's growing uh, was growing diagonally? Uh, no, this was the one that grew back. This was my, the good, the quote unquote good one. It, okay. Oh, John, I'm sorry. It died out of sympathy. It yeah. grew back, not great looking, but straight and just like a normal toenail is just maybe not the most attractive, but in the correct direction and the correct dimensions grew all the way out to normal toenail length. And then it stopped mm. and it hmm. did not, it did not grow for like a year. Right. I never uh -huh. cut this toenail like because it never it stopped growing as soon as it got to toenail length, which I would have been fine with as long as it wasn't hurting me and didn't start looking worse. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what happened recently. It started hurting me and it started looking worse. So I had to make the appointment to go back in. And this time he looked at it and I said, I get I told him the same criteria. I said, last time I came in, you said it didn't need to be taken off. What do you think now? He's like, man, probably need to be taken off now. I'm like, yeah, I agree. <laughs> so I got it taken off now. So he's looking at oh, it. Oh, well, you, you did it today. He did it right there in the room. Yeah, no, I, just, I got it this morning, Ooh. right? So, for, well, he did look at it and he said, okay, well, I told him it hadn't grown, but it also, it's, not you, you you asked for this. Let me just remind no, you. No, 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 but like, I, I mean, what, did you know that that was a possibility? That, no, like that's, that's what I made the appointment for. Okay. All right. So I, I, I had told them, you know, the, the part of the problem was that like, it wasn't growing anymore, but also the, the part that like the bottom part of the toenail that connects to your toe, <laughs> Yes. the toenail <laughs> had separated from that ages ago. Okay. Right. Yep. One, I'm, looking, and, I'm and, not fucking making noise. <laughs> you had a you had an unexpected toenail bifurcation. Like usually, once the toenail separates from so the part, so you kind of it, had two nails growing. Yeah. Well, that's what he looked at. He's like, "Well, it looks like I said, look how it's separated. So obviously, that thing on top is totally dead." He's like, "But it looks like there might be another one under there trying to grow up <laughs> and through some new growth." Right. And I, I told him the last time the previous doctor had taken mm. off that toenail, he'd found mm -hmm. three other toenails down there trying to grow. <laughs> But you can't have three, <laughs> so he took them all out. So the, so this oh, time, okay. this this time he said, "Okay, well, what we're gonna do is I'll try to take off the top one, and if the bottom one looks okay, we'll leave it there." Uh, mm -hmm. All right. So you know, we was go he having trouble seeing how the bottom one was doing because the top one was so distracting. Yeah. Also, he starts uh -huh. doing all the stuff after the extremely painful mm -hmm. process of getting it numbed up with needles that they shove into your toe and wiggle around for like ten minutes. It's great. Mm -hmm. um, Shh, gotta find a vein. 
No, they just spend, they're just rooting around in there. They just spend a lot. You know, when you got a shot for a cavity, it's like, oh, one and done. Shoot, shot, and you're done. Yeah. Boop, shot, and you're done. This is not like that. This is, I'm going to set up camp in here. I'm going to start making a little maze. Maybe I'll go over here. Maybe I'll go over yeah. there. Maybe go yeah, in this yeah, direction. Yeah. Maybe go over there. I heard, I've heard I've heard it said, I don't know if this is true. Um, I've heard it said that anesthesiology is one of the most difficult parts, difficult parts of medical procedures because it's so hard to get right. You know oh, what I mean? Just, this is just numbing your toe. It's not hard well it sounds like it wasn't as easy as just popping in a, it's a, not as easy for the patient but for the doctor they're mostly oh. trying to make you as comfortable as possible but the bottom line is they're gonna have to have a he needle might just in be your trying, he might have been improvising he might have been trying some things out yeah i mean they they you know put the needle in a little bit and then they squirt some of the stuff and then mm -hmm. it numbs that area and then they put it in farther and they squirt some more stuff and it numbs that they're trying to do that process is, is it called tovacane it should be so so we got to get first of all just to be clear here we don't know we don't know how many nails there might be here no, there might be like kind of a fan shape mm -hmm. but like what you're what i'm hearing you saying is you the part that brought you in the concern was the the the, the topmost old growth uh toe we he was like we got to get rid of that and then once that's out of the way it'll be easier for me to get in there and, and futz around and, and see what we're looking at in well, terms of he uh, said the new maybe maybe i can take off the top one and the bottom and i had my doubts about this from the start because i was like mm, yeah because yeah. it's yeah. You know, like i just it was just like a mess down there and so i my normal procedure this is one of the uh the blessings of having terrible vision my normal procedure is i take off my glasses so i can't even like see my toes because you know they're just down there and I'm sitting in the thing, right? And You're so, seeing it is not going to make it easier. Right. And my vision is so bad that once I take my glasses off, it's just a red blur down there. Like you can't see anything. So I take my glasses off and he's down. I don't even look at it. I'm looking at the diagram of feet on the wall because I really don't need to see someone <laughs> going to town on my toe. You know, Are they the wall? The ones on the walls, are they healthy feet or are they concerning feet? It's like a, a an anatomical diagram, like line drawing of like, this is oh. what the bones oh, that, of the foot that's are. Fine. Or that's fine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The different muscles in the calf and the leg. And anyway, mm -hmm. um, so he's down there and he's doing stuff and he's, you know, he's checking in with me. You know, can you feel this? Can you feel that? Because it's, you know, <laughs> right. It's like, no, it's all numb. It's fine. You're doing good. Uh, and it, you know, if you've ever had any part of yourself numbed and then had someone cut things off of it, you know, you feel this pressure because they're pressing mm -hmm. pretty hard to, to get the job done, but you don't feel it in your toe. You feel it like nothing like the, that feeling of a wisdom tooth. The, the only, yeah, it's, yeah. When it slides out, you know, that there's a very distinctive feeling to that. Yeah. And you're feeling it, you're feeling it like in the parts that aren't numb, which is like distant from where it's happening. Right. 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 So anyway, and so I'm, you know, I'm doing that, but I'm not looking at what he's doing. And then he's going and doing stuff. He's like, oh, you know, we're almost done or whatever. And I, you know, I should mention, so were you able to separate the top from the bottom? I was like, no, they were fused together. <laughs> oh. They were fused together. And, and, and the bottom one had a little bit of part that was like bleeding into the other thing and blah, blah, blah. And so I just took it all out. It was a scorched earth, everything gone. Yeah. Once again, took it so all got, out. You got no toenail on there. Yeah. So that was this morning. Isn't that very sensitive? Uh, I mean, it doesn't feel good. I mean, uh, I think but, about like when I was a kid and my mom would trim my nails and if she uh -huh. trimmed the, in like a way I regarded as being too much, I, could, I couldn't touch corduroy for two days. Yeah, I did. I did mention that as we were making small talk as he was jabbing needles into my toe. Mm -hmm. um, said, you know, uh, I was mentioning to him that like, you know, this, this toenail is probably going to come off pretty easy because it's not even a, attached to the toe until way mm. far back. Mm -hmm. Like you can look underneath the toenail and see there's like, it's just mm. open under there. You could you can stick a toothpick one inch into there. There's nothing there. It's not the toenail is not attached to my toe until way mm -hmm. down low, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and <laughs> what I said to him was, and it's been like this for so long. 
and it started to turn like black a little bit. And I'm like, this is going to fall off, right? It's going to fall off on its own. Mm. You know, lots of people's like, oh, I injured my toe and it turned black and then my toenail fell off. Who hasn't yes. heard that story? Absolutely. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. I thought that was going to happen hmm. for nine months. I was waiting for that to happen and it never <laughs> happened. And I told him when he was rooting around on there, I said, you know, since this thing is barely attached and since I kept thinking it was going to fall off, I did have the thought, you know, at home that, oh, he, he just got done telling me that a lot of people end up going to the ER for stuff like this, even though it's not really surgery or whatever. And he was saying the people in the ER don't have the time to do the gentle, uh, like a numbing procedure that he was doing. They just go, you know, because they're in the mm, ER. They're not yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Crap. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I told him, uh, you know, since it's not attached at home, I was thinking I had the thought. I could probably take this thing off. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's barely hanging on by a thread. I've got tools, right? Mm -hmm. Like how hard could it be to take the toenail off, right? Apron. Right. Uh, and then he said he said to me, "Well, did you try it?" And I said, "No," because I had that thought. But I am a mature adult who can have that thought and then say, "You know what? Yes, isn't sticking things under your toenail a form of torture?" There's probably a reason for that. Maybe I should think twice about the idea. That, uh, you know, since since I've had it done so many times and it didn't hurt when they did it, I could probably do this at home with no anesthetic, but I right. did not act on I, it. And, but there's that voice, at least in my head, that would I could just hear that voice in my head going, what in the world made you think that you could safely and hygienically, medically remove your own toenail? Right. And es but especially the part of like, how much could it hurt? Is it really sensitive down there? And the answer is Yes. It's very <laughs> like shoving sharp objects under your nails is generally known in the culture. Like, were you thinking you'd like like five simple machines kind of thing where you'd make like a lever? Would you like what like a like a like a, think, like an eyeglasses you, screwdriver? You go under there and you just wedge it up. I think you need a sharp blade that's like a scraper to separate the two things from each other. So for starters, not, not a classic exacto knife, but like if you're like me and you're a hobbyist, I've got exacto knives, some of which have like almost like a like a spade. Like mm -hmm. kind of like a like when I say blunt, why well, I, I just mean that it's squared off at the end. Of course, it's still razor sharp, but that's the kind of thing you might want to look into. Yeah. If you're gonna and, and keep, I wish I could tell you what yeah. tools he uses to do it, uh, mm -hmm. but I have never seen them because I like take off my glasses. Right? Yeah. I know there are some blunt instruments involved, and I'm pretty sure there is a scalpel involved, and there are definitely pliers involved. Uh, Medical pliers. Yeah, exactly. Lots of. This, I mean, it's like the dentist tools. Never look at the dentist tools. Like, don't look at the surgeon's tools. Don't look at the dentist tools. Just, no. That's what that's what they get. So anyway. They're, that's not for you. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't do it myself. Uh, and and he reinforced the idea that, no, you should not try to do it yourself. I said, I didn't. See, that I'm a mature adult who knows not to do that. He's like, yes, that's how you end up at the ER. <laughs> Having the person give you the, sure. the numbing shot in a not so gentle way. I'm just imagining, um, I'm, I'm so sorry, listeners. Uh, this is such an ill-advised choice of words, but a tearing. I'm thinking about like when you've got like a like a loose nail and you think, oh, I can handle this. Like I'll just but you end up like taking off more than you wanted to. And even on a more or less healthy fingernail, mm -hmm. like you really you do you do feel it. Yeah. And the big toe is it's your it's a big nail and there's yeah. a lot going on down there and your feet are very sensitive and they're inside your shoes. And it's anyway. That's so, true. Yeah. So he did. He did what he had to do. Took it off. Wrapped my toe. Did, up. You, did you get to keep it? No, they never give you the stuff. It's a biohazard. Hmm. You're a biohazard. Yeah. That's a shame because my grandfather had his cataract um, part of his eye. He yeah, had... they don't let anybody keep anything. Remember I told you they wouldn't let me keep my wisdom teeth? Yeah, I, I, I don't care for that. My friend Grant had all four of his wisdom teeth on a necklace, and I thought it looked kind of badass. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just Florida, or as you would say, Florida. Florida, yeah. Um, well, did you get any sense 
Okay. Well, okay. First of all, like, so how did it end up? You, they just, they, 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 they wrap it in something. Do they give yeah, you? So once, once it's all taken off, uh, they take basically like a gauze and like a, you know, a thin strip of the regular kind of ace bandage wrapping go mm-hmm, mm-hmm. around your toe and it wraps around your toe and not too big because they need you to be able to fit it back into your sock and your shoe, mm-hmm. which I do I put it in my sock and my shoe and you hobble out of there being real careful not to break your toe because everything's numb. Uh, and then slowly over the course of the day, the numbing wears off, and then you realize you have a painful throbbing toe, and that's where I'm at now. What's, um, do you have a sense of what's next? Yeah, I mean, I've done this multiple times already. What's next is you got to keep the bandage on for at least 24 hours, and then after that, you can take it off and switch to just doing, like, Neosporin and a Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and depending that's on sensitivity, how... though, the sensitivity, John, like a whole knot toenail seems like it mm-hmm. would be very sensitive. Yeah, well, so depending on how the procedure went, I've done this, you know, three times now, uh, depending on how the procedure went is it, like the area that it could be sensitive because it's the area that was under your nail and that's inherently sensitive. It can also be sensitive because essentially it is an open wound. Mm. So, for example, when you go to take a shower the first time, you're going to find out, hey, are there any like cuts or slices there that water and soap are going to go into and be super duper painful or is it merely going to be the complete lack of a toenail and sensitive skin right because Uh i can tell you the sensitive skin yes it's sensitive but getting soapy water into actual cuts is worse Uh so i'll find that out the first time i take a shower with this one of the times i did it the, the person said oh you can wrap your foot up in a plastic bag in the shower so it doesn't get wet and i did that but it was too much of a hassle and this guy was like, you know what? You don't actually have to do that. Just, you know, Band-Aid, Neosporin or whatever. So that's that's my read. It heals surprisingly quickly for the most part. Yeah. And then, so if, if slash when this happens again, what do you do? Do you, do you try and do it yourself? I mean, what, what are you, let me put it this way. What, what are we, what are we hoping for? Like what, what, what's a, what's an outcome for this? Is there any hope for your toes? I mean, so this guy didn't even suggest the idea, the nuke and pave idea, which is, uh, you know, they basically put a chemical on the part where your nail glows, grows and kill it all off so no nail will ever grow there again. That is the ultimate end point if, if things, you know, if we can't get this going. But once again, uh, you know, I didn't suggest it. He didn't bring it up. We're going to give it another chance because last time it, it, uh, the toenail was removed and it grew a new toenail, a new, complete, directionally correct, correctly sized toenail that reached full length and then died and stayed dead for nine months and then got removed. Maybe that's right. just what's going to happen again. I don't know. It uh, sounds like that might be what happens again, but I mean, it could be worse. I mean, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I'm giving, well, the bottom line is I'm giving it another chance because mm-hmm. the, the the permanent thing is irreversible. You make that decision and that's that. And, and yet I, you think Amy Adams is a monster because of Arrival. What's, my toenail's not sentient. I'm, I'm just, this you is my body. You don't know that. You don't know that. My but body, like, my choice, Merlin. Okay, that's that's fair. I'm gonna keep my hands off your toes. Don't worry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just so you just kind of keep going with it and like. Oh, well, so the re- like you said about the sensitive skin. The reason I keep giving it another chance is I've had no toenail on both of my toes at various times, and it sucks. Like because it is sensitive there, yes. and it, like and mm-hmm. they're like, oh well, it'll get less sensitive over time. But bottom line is, you're not used to something going poke poke on that part of your toe. It feels much better when there's a hard thing there distributing the pressure. And you'd be surprised how many things apply pressure to the tops of your toes. But when it applies pressure and there's a toenail there, it spreads that pressure across oh, the no, whole no. area of the yeah. toe. Right? No, when there's I'm, not I'm there, old enough, it hurts. I'm old enough to have parts of my body where numerous parts of my body that maybe they aren't a toe. But I know I know what you're talking about. Like you're you're vulnerable um, in you know kind of a true sense of the word, where like you've got like a, a snail out of the shell. 
like a snail out of the shell. Hmm. Um, and so you just you just kind of stick with it. Is your family being supportive yeah, in this time? They're, they're sticking yeah. my toes. Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah, and so that's why I don't want to do the permanent thing because that would be condemning myself to an entire life of always having that sensitive top thing. Whereas now there's at least hope that a decent toenail will grow back. I don't care if a decent toenail grows back and dies. I just want it to be in stasis, like to not get worse, to not hurt me, to not start bruising, to not, you know, I'd be happy if it even fell, if it grew, fell off and another one grew and it fell off. I'm happy to repeat that cycle. I just don't want cycles that end in, uh, you know, going back to this guy. But so far, that's been the pattern. So this this, this could be my life. <sighs> I, I'm sorry you have to go through this. Yeah, but, mean, you know, I mean, like, sorry. you know, uh, the the people that I come from, you always try and look on the bright side. I guess it's better than if it was your thumbnail. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, and it's certainly better than my colonoscopy, which is coming up at the end of this month. Stay tuned for that, everybody. You'll be fine. You just got to drink all that stuff, you know. Mm. You have to do that. You got to drink the stuff. I'm aware, yes. It's a lot of stuff you got to drink. Got to wake up at 3 a.m. to drink it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they love making rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 8 a.m. appointment. Don't, don't forget, five hours before your 8 a.m. appointment, take your last drink. And spend an hour and a half on the toilet. Well, <laughs> um, and this is a, a colonoscopy. So you, will you be awake for that? I sure hope not. <laughs> yeah, I've had, well, you know what? I actually super don't want to talk about this. But, you know, if you, t- I think you should tell them you'd like to be knocked out. Just, just be super clear about it. We talked about this some weeks ago. This has been something you've been turning over, this whole idea of having to deal with... Uh, mm-hmm. I think you got. You should just say, "Look, I would love to be knocked completely out." I, I I think that's what's going on. But if it's not what's going on, whatever. I've never had this done before. I'm putting myself in their hands. Uh, my second and third colonoscopy, I will know more. Kind of like the toe thing. All right. Well, it was a mixed bag working with you. Mm-hmm. No follow up appointment. Don't have to worry about that. Just like ne- next time, yeah, it rots I off. Follow, let us I know. Follow up appointment. Where they just look at it, and make sure it's not infected. Mm. They just want to get another appointment. It's whatever. All right. Yeah, follow up appointment is nothing. Thank you to everybody for listening um, to John's toe updates. If you have any questions for John, don't put it where I can see it. You know, take care. Take care of your toes. Take care of your toes. Do you think maybe this could be like a special thing? This could be like a, like bonus episode stuff, where like maybe we, maybe not photos, but maybe drawings. Like maybe you could draw your toe because you're a good <laughs> I have, artist. I have so many toe photos in my toe photo album. It's like punishment if everyone, anyone ever steals my phone and wants to look at my intimate pictures. Boom, toe photos. That's what you get. Oh, you knew. Yeah, exactly. You're like maybe you shouldn't have been poking around because look you what you got. You got it. You got an eye. Too greedily and too deep. <laughs> you got an eye full of toe. Oh, boy. Um, next up, some new uh, late breaking news. John, what's going on with you, too? They are still alive and still making music, even though they're super duper old. Uh, and their latest thing that's kind of in their little trilogy, what did they do? Songs of Innocence was an album full of songs. And they did Songs of Experience. And they the one they're coming out with now, I'm not going to say their final one. What is it called? Um, I've already forgotten the title. Uh, let's see. Songs, I am... of, songs of Surrender. Oh, Surrender. Songs of Surrender, and it will feature 40 reworked versions of songs from their back catalog. So they're mm-hmm. literally putting out an album of covers of their own songs. 40 of them. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about that? Well, are, you looking, are you looking forward to it? Let me read you the one, uh, one or two paragraphs of the PR pitch. This is from The Edge, ostensibly. Um, 
The fact is that most of our work was written and recorded when we were a bunch of very young men. Those songs mean something quite different to us now. Some have grown with us, some we have outgrown, but we have not lost sight of what propelled us to write those songs in the first place. The essence of those songs is still in us, but how to reconnect with that essence when we have moved on and grown so much. Mm -hmm. So that's their idea of like, hey, and, and honestly, they've been playing these songs for the entire career. Hey, we wrote these songs when we were young. Let's record ones now when Bono's voice is gravelly and his range is smaller. And we have different ideas about music. And mm-hmm. I'm, as a huge, big U2 fan, I'm interested to hear the covers. My expectation is uh, I will like none of them better than the originals. But you never know. With 40, maybe there'll be one or two in there that I'll actually like better than the originals. It's been known to happen, but I uh, doubt it. But anyway, I get all U2 stuff. I will be getting this album. I think it is interesting. I think it's an interesting thing to do for a band. I mean, I feel like U2, they're not the the last band standing but they're of, of their contemporaries they and, and and original lineup yeah original lineup has never wavered no since what like 19 no, probably 78 or 9 yeah no no sort of time in the wilderness where the band changed up and they had a reunion tour nope just continuous service as they say for all this time and i think at, you know in fits and starts during the over their entire career doing good work there mm-hmm. was you know not so good but then better than not so good then better than not like it wasn't like a slow decline or anything like that or like hit the peak and go downhill it was in every era of the band they've done some good work whether you like it or not i think even even their very most recent couple of albums good stuff there because they know what they're doing they know who they are and like and so you know i i give them complete pass to make to do 40 covers of their songs if you look at the picture of them at the top of this article they are looking old yeah, uh, but, but it's kind of amazing. Adam, Adam looks great. Yeah, I didn't recognize him at first. I was like, I, well, if, you, if you'd shown me a photo of this man, I would have guessed that he's some kind of a celebrity chef. Yeah, or Santa Claus. <laughs> but I mean, it's better than that afro he used to have, for sure. Because yeah. that's, that's been a while now. Yeah, so they're they're, they're very old now. And, and, like, and the thing that pains me the most is, I mean, I don't know if it pains me, because whatever, it's just, but like, R.E.M., I thought R.E.M. would be right there with them, and they kind of could have been, but it's it's like they just decided we're not doing that. I mean, I know the whole Bill Berry thing and the stroke and all that. Like it's it's different circumstances. Bill Berry but had a stroke. Yeah. Huh. What are you talking about? Wait, is is that why he stopped playing? You don't remember that? Uh, I I thought I... he just dropped out because oh I, oh wow that sucks I didn't know that. No, I saw, you, like, yeah. Here, let me see. I saw a thing on YouTube uh, the other day, um, which is some kind of like uh, it's, it was really weird, but it, but but interesting, especially if you're me. Uh, it was like a 40th anniversary like tribute to REM, and it was mainly it was Mike Mills and a whole bunch of other people, um, including lots of luminaries from like Pylon was there, Mitch Easter from Let's Active, who also co-produced their first few records. Like he was there, but yeah, it's yeah. So oh, yeah, I, I did quickly in '95. Uh, he had a cerebral aneurysm on stage. Right. Um, oh God! But then, and then he stayed with the band. But then, and then he he left. Well, remember, remember the thing? Like he 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 recovered from that, and he's like, "Here I am, I'm back in the band." But eventually, he said, "You know what? Yeah, I'm rich. I've done all this stuff. I don't know how much time I have left. I'm going to go be a farmer in Georgia or whatever." Right. 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 And, but but the but him doing that is the condition for him doing that was that the band had to continue or some sort of thing like that of like I don't want the band to end because of me, so you have to continue without me. So they did a bunch of albums without him. Do you remember that? where they would rotate in different drummers and they had a drum yeah. machine on up and all that other stuff. And wow. then eventually R.E.M. said, 
actually now we're just calling it quits and it was far enough away from that event that everyone was fine and they just you know we're just fine but the whole point is they were like you too they never split up because of arguments there was no multiple lineups there was a medical issue and then essentially slow retirement uh right. but you it, it wasn't was one of those what was one of those terrible public things like pink floyd comes to mind mm-hmm. or you know um anybody or the drummer blow, blowing up in a helicopter crash or whatever the <laughs> but also just like spinal tap um yeah um bizarre gardening accident but um yeah i mean this is this is interesting for actually weirdly interesting to me for several reasons i mean one thing is that like i i i can barely even imagine i mean i know as a consumer how things have changed but as a band like it's especially the the real money at least as i've always understood it i don't know if this is accurate but the way it's been explained to me is that the the mon- the long term money historically has been in publishing that, you know, and so like if you wrote the song and you performed on the song, the performing on the song, well, you may just get paid a wage for the day. But if you wrote the song, like that's where there's, you know, you you have some bankable future income. And obviously that's not nearly as bankable as it used to be. Um, the reason I think this is interesting is like I, I'm I'm reminded of things like, on the one hand, stuff like I've mentioned to you before, like New Order. Uh, bands like New Order who have like there's just so much stuff on Spotify that's like one song. There must be something to making money with the algorithm that involves different titles. I don't, I'm not sure what it would be, but like so many different things constantly. Pixies do something similar. There are these bands that just put out all these live records and all that kind of stuff. But then there's also the stuff like what Jeff Lynn did. And I, I mean, lots of people have done this now, but Jeff Lynn was one of the first I remember, which was he did... He took a bunch of ELO songs and re-recorded them. I mean, lots of people have done this. But like with the Jeff, you can barely, they sound really like the versions that you've heard from the 70s and in some cases 80s. So, I mean, I wonder, I'm not trying to be cynical about this, but like, is it that interesting at 60 years old to go cover your own songs? I guess 40 is probably. No, you two owns all their own music. So they're not doing a Taylor Swift thing where they re-record it because they don't own it. Well, yes, but... Okay, maybe so. But like, for example, like I remember, um, oh gosh, I remember very specifically, not a very good song, but the ELO song, um, Hold On Tight, was used in coffee commercials in the mid 80s, mm-hmm. like, which was pretty wild in some ways at the time. There weren't that many like rock. I mean, there'd been like Beach Boys Good Vibrations in whatever, Sunkissed or whatever that was. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, the thing is, I don't, and again, I don't know a lot about this. I do know that a lot of hands, touch the music that eventually gets to where we can hear it. They're the people who wrote it, the people who performed it, but then there's stuff like, you know, does what does the what is the label's ownership of your work, et cetera. The reason, one reason people like Jeff Lynn and others do it is because if they record a new version, that's the version that they will license to people. So you make the money, and I'm not saying this is purely, I'm not saying this is cynical. It's just good business. We're like, you know, um, somebody like, who would that be? Probably Epic or whoever owned like the catalog of albums, you know? Like, for example, a lot of people get kind of confused. Why is there in Grammys? Why is there a song of the year and a record of the year? Well, they're different things. One of them is a performance and the other one's writing, right? Anyway, I guess what I'm saying is I, I wonder, what do you think made them want to do this are they gonna like i'll tell you what would fascinate me is like let's do i mean i know this sounds like a like a stunt but like let's re-record lemon but do it in the style of october 
or let's you know what i'm saying <laughs> no they're not they're not doing that like i don't i don't well, what, think, what are they doing why are they doing I t- this i take them at their word here like that reinterpreting the them, is, reinterpreting them yeah well the idea is that they are so much older and uh have more experience they they have different musical ideas and different musical tastes they are different people they're older and wiser like they were kids then now they're parents maybe even grandparents probably rushed in the studio a lot of the times especially up up Probably up to and even maybe well, I don't know about through whatever the one from eighty seven. No, I, I don't know, like I think the last time you two was rushed in the studio was pop. <laughs> right after that, and all the things you said are true. Most artists, but you two has more money than God. They are not. They have been doing everything for the past like decade at their own pace. Like they, they well, they got more money than God for now. But who knows what's going to continue to change? That's one reason. No, amongst, no, they're they're yeah. they're fine. All right, they're all right fine. Well, I, <laughs> and but like the thing. Okay, so like this is a dumb thing that people do in America, which is like we assume that anybody that we've heard of is rich. I know, and, but um, and we assume that you. everybody we've heard of will be rich forever. What I'm saying is, though, like, why do people keep doing stuff? Well, sometimes they're very ambitious. Somebody like a Steve Jobs, like, probably working up to the last minute that he could in one way or another. But yeah, my my interpretation of why you two keeps doing what they're doing is that I don't think I'm not going to say I don't think any of them, but I think a critical mass of them don't like to think of themselves as people who can no longer. People who should no longer make rock music. I, I'm not sure which members these are. It's probably Bono and the Edge, but I don't know. Like that, they they their conception of themselves is that we play in a rock and roll band, and right. the idea that at some point they have to be like, okay, that's the thing that you did when you were younger, but now you're an old man, you can't or shouldn't do that anymore. That the idea of that, the idea of not being in a band is to I'm not gonna say like an ego threat but like their their self-image like they, they feel like they they still like oh y'all many of us feel like this you they still feel like they're 18 not that they feel like they're 18 that they're young and everything no, but they still feel but like I, why but I, but I take your point they, they they don't feel like they've aged out of this yeah they, they feel like they still have more to give and more importantly if in the moments when they don't feel like they have more to give that is more of that feels worse like it, it would feel bad to say like we're not going to do this anymore we're retiring like they can never retire and kind of in the same way that you mentioned like workaholic billionaires they're like some critical mass of them are somewhat workaholic rock and roll people like that they will they will be because they're not doing it for the money they're not doing it for the fans they're not doing it for the fame they they just want to make music because that's mm-hmm. who they are, like their self image. And I, and again, I don't think it's true of all of them. I think Adam probably would have retired and been happy, but like because they are so bonded as a group of people who've known each other since they were kids and been in the same band their entire life, that they're not going to let each other down. So the ones that would the ones that would be happy just being a farmer and counting their billions and playing with their kids, or at least the ones who think they would be happy, would never go do that because they're not going to let down their friends. And that's why they've been putting out albums slowly they don't care how many people like them again it's like it's like whatever everything's they like i i totally believe that they they thought the next interesting thing we do like it probably does seem exhausting how we come come with new songs what else do we have to say this idea comes up it's like we sing these songs on stage for our fans we you know we play the hits or whatever and we play them so differently now than we did then and we and we think about them differently why don't we do an album of that and i feel like that's what they're doing Mm -hmm. yeah um in 1990-something, I think in the late 90s, I'll, I'll, keep, this, I'll keep this relatively short, but um, Cheap Trick recorded an album with um, Steve Albini, who's a producer, well, excuse me, an engineer that I like a lot. And um, he's produced a lot of my favorite bands. And um, 
they were recording with Steve Albini, you know, and it was going to be their next record. And I don't know, at least the story goes that just for fun, they also decided to re-record their 1970, probably seven album in color, an album. Have you heard the story before? Do you know the story? No, I haven't. So 1977, they put out, I think it was 97, this guy Tom Worman was the producer. Um, I'm doing this off the dome. But like uh, Circa 77, it's the one that had, believe it or not, I Want You to Want Me, but not the version of I Want You to Want Me you've heard. The one you've heard, most people, is the one from Live at Budokan, quote unquote Live at Budokan. But the point is, like, the songs on In Color are really, really good. Very, very good. The production on that album with all due respect to Tom Warman it's pretty thin it doesn't really get at the the oomph of it and I think Cheap Trick knows that and they probably they were probably really happy that the the live version of yeah, I Want You To Want Me like if you go like if you go to Spotify right now or tonight or whenever go listen to the version on In Color and it's it's a much less rockin' song so anyway they re-recorded Almost all, uh, they've recorded all of the basic tracks for In Color. I don't think they finished it, but I've got a bootleg. I don't know how it got out, but like I've got, I've got that record and it sounds really good. Here's the thing though. They recorded that in the 90s, 20 years after they recorded In Color and had been touring on those songs like for a very, very, very long time. And so on the one hand, you go like, oh man, yeah, this is a really cool, like Steve Albini produced record. But on the other hand, it's a little bit, not a cheat, but a way of going like, well, yeah, but like 20 years of doing this on the road and knowing what works and doesn't versus the, I don't know, weeks, the few weeks you spend recording, you can bring a lot to that. So I, I, I think I, I, I super get that. And the wanting to, it, whatever that has become or whatever it can become, I hope they take some swings on a few songs that they think are I, I think they're going to take big swings on a lot of them, which is why I'm not going to like them. Like the, the two types of U2 songs that, in terms of production that, that I see are the first kind is the kind where they recorded on the album and then within, uh, uh, you know, a week and a half of the tour that follows that album, they figure out a new way to play it. And then mm -hmm. for the next 30 years, that becomes the way they play the song. And that leaves the album is like, do you remember the weird album version? Of that song sounded totally different, totally those, different uh, instrumentation. Off the top of your head, are there any like of songs that I might recognize like earlier in their catalog? Other songs like that you think that got changed? I bet you stuff on war. I bet you there's stuff on war. Yeah, that I mean, there's the obvious one where like, in the studio, you can do all sorts of crap. When you do it live, you're not going to have the symphony orchestra with you all the time. You're not, you're not going to have all the synths. You're not going to have, uh, Bono's not going to be three times on the vocal track. He's just going to be one, right? Sometimes they'll have recorded backing tracks, but there's that where it has to be a pared down live arrangement. But there are other ones where it's like, oh, remember that weird warbly Brian Eno thing? Well, Brian Eno's not on tour with us. And so, yeah, on, on <laughs> Unforgettable Fire, it sounds like this. When we play it live, all that crap is gone because we decided it doesn't work as well. And we're just going to play it with, you know, guitar, drums and bass, uh, you know, and that becomes the version that for a band like you, too, that was like, oh, yeah, for the last 30 years, we've been playing it like this. But there's a weird album version. The second kind is the kind where they, you know, like do a virtuoso version of it on the album that is impossible to play live, except for the like the, the you know, 10th and 20th anniversary where they literally do get the seven guitarists and the, and the symphony orchestra or whatever, mm -hmm. and that no live version will ever have the detail and wonder of the album version because it's impossible to do live and then what they end up playing live instead is kind of like not the acoustic version but like the stripped down sort of 
you know, remix version of it, which is also your, good, your generation will it, call it unplugged. Not even unplugged, but just sort of like paired. Okay, but you're right. That that kind of vibe. And, and and it may be great, and it may be a great version, but also the album version. I would put most of the things on the Joshua Tree like that. Like how many freaking guitars are there where the streets have no names? When they play where the streets have no names live, mm. there's not seven guitars. There's mm-hmm. you know two live is, guitars. Is Bullet and two the Blue Sky on that record? Yes. Maybe I do like that record. I'll have to think about it. No, but because the production of that one is so painstaking and so layered and has so much yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I think they nailed it. Unlike a lot of the production on like, oh, we did this song on pop and it sounds weird and when we do it live, it's better because the production on pop was odd and we're never going to play it like that again. Mm-hmm. On Joshua Tree, the production, like they got it. Like the, every, every one of those tracks, well, maybe Trip Through Your Wires. Meh. But anyway, they, they pretty much got what they wanted. It's just that they can't reproduce that live, right? And so, but these ones though, I think that like you just, you can watch the little trailer on YouTube where they do, <laughs> let's do one of our old songs, Beautiful Day. Like Beautiful Day is not an old song. Come on. Anyway, um, <laughs> they they do a version of Beautiful Day and it's like different tempo. It's in a different key because Bono can't hit the notes anymore. The instrumentation is like, you know, Lazy River but version. But you can be, you can be so creative with things like that though. Rather, rather than just seeing it as a way mm-hmm. to paper over deficits. I wasn't going to mention this, but um, I'm going to mention it. Um, I don't know. Well, I doubt that you're the ardent Nick Lowe fan that I am. I'm a huge fan of Nick Lowe. Um, I love, I mean, go look it up. Like he was in Rock Pile with Dave Edmonds and Billy Bremer. And anyway, whatever. So you probably knew Nick Lowe from Cruel to Be Kind. And, but real quick, so he was, there's a genre of music in the UK that was popular in the early 70s called pub rock. And pub rock is basically like, it's kind of like roots rock, it's like back to basics like bar band, like rock and roll music. I mean, an American analog later might be something a little bit like early Tom Petty. But, you know, he was in a band called, uh, Nick Lowe was in a band called Brinsley Schwartz. And that's where he first wrote and performed um, one of his best known songs. What's so funny about Peace, Love, and Understanding, later covered by Elvis Costello. But anyway, Nick Lowe's one of my favorites. I think he's, I think he's just such an interesting guy. The Rockpile documentary, Born Fighter uh, is extremely good. Highly recommended. It's one of, he's one of my favorites. I, I wonder if you know this about Nick Lowe. Um, in 1991, I guess, when did The Bodyguard with Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner come out? Probably 91, right? No, I, I cannot tell you years of things in that era. <laughs> well, what, what you'll remember is that that included her cover of Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You, mm-hmm. which was a monster, monster hit. And I think... I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I'm not going to look it up. But the Bodyguard soundtrack was, I think, I mean, it's one of the things like Thriller. Where like at Mm -hmm. the time, I think it was like the best-selling soundtrack of all time. Let's suffice to say that like you do, you do real well. Like Dolly Parton probably made some pretty good coin off that. And God knows she deserves it. Um, Did you know that she wrote I Will Always Love You and Jolene on the same day? I did. Isn't that insane? Mm-hmm. It's a really good podcast with her and Jed Abramrod. I can recommend. John, John, Denver, John Denver wrote uh, Annie's song on the chairlift. Which one is that? Annie's song is, uh, oh, you fill out my senses? Mm-hmm. Uh, as featured on this very program. You sure about that? And then Monty Python parodied it, remember? Yeah. You came on my pillow. Here's the thing. There's a cover of a Niccolo song of, oddly enough, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? There's a cover, uh, it's a pretty good cover, but the point being, the song, and this gets back to our, our, our point from an hour ago, he wrote, what's so funny about Peace, Love, and Understanding, eh, what, 73, 74, something like that? He, they played it in Brinsley Schwartz, of course, later Elvis Costello 
covered it. Um, Nick Lowe produced that record. The point is, Nick Lowe wrote that song in the 70s. Somebody covered it, and it got on the Bodyguard soundtrack. And like, I, I, I only say this, I say this as a salute, not because I'm obsessed with money. Good for Nick Lowe. That guy was set for life in like the early to mid 90s. He was this guy, they called him Basher because he was, he was, I mean, he had a very like brusque attitude in the studio. It's just like, get this thing done. We're not going to do 42 takes to get the best version of Hound Dog. Keep it moving, keep it going. And, you know, he, he, he bashed at the bass and he bashed at the faders and bash, bash, bash. But anyway, um, it's just so interesting to me that like by the mid 90s, he was in pretty good shape. Why do I mention it here? He has done the most interesting thing. I still, I mean, I love, um, like, I, um, uh, I love his early records. I mean, I love, you know, the um, uh, Jesus of Cool, which has a different name in the U.S. I love, you know, the one with, um, uh, oh my God, the one with Skin Deep. Anyways, he's great. But you know what's interesting is like in over the years now, he still does his songs but he does them very, very quietly. And it's not a bit. It's not like a gimmick. He, but he's like, he's bringing so much to every song. You could really, I think you could say he has, re- if you hear him do, I'll, I'll, I'll tippy-toe lemon tree, I'll find something for notes. I'll see if I can find a cover, him doing, you know, a piece of love and understanding. But like he does it in this very hushed voice with very quiet guitar and that to me, I mean, A, I mentioned it because, yeah, yeah, good for him. He made some money off it. But B, that to me is an interesting way to approach bringing your songs somewhere different. And, and it isn't just as simple as it's not like listening to low or something. It's not like he's just playing quietly. Like there's a whole, like he's kind of reinterpreting it. And I admire that. I admire when people find a way to, to do things a little bit differently rather than just like, you know, playing an acoustic guitar. So, you know, Nick Lowe, check him out. Yeah, I think we mentioned this on the uh, show before when talking about covers. Uh, so part part of it, I feel like if you if you have a bunch of popular songs, it's inevitable that you get sick of them and want to do them in a different way. And so, you know, who who most wants to hear a totally different version of a song? The person <laughs> right. who's been playing it for years and years. Absolutely. So, yeah. Like, I mean, that certainly happened to a lot of U2 songs, especially the stripped down kind of unplugged, quiet version of a song that was pre- previously raucous. And I allow bands, you know, I think that's, that's fine. That's great. The, the point, the great thing about music is unlike movies <clears throat> george lucas we've always had the original version so if you like the album version go listen to it and yeah. sometimes it's fun to hear interesting covers and i i also have like five or six cover albums of you two there was this thing where like, remember everyone was making like covers of octung baby like another artist would just do the whole album right oh, really wow yeah that, that was a bunch of those there's also that's the their, ver- that's is that a brian that's a brian Eno german like one yeah. of their their, that's a, their that's crowd a, rock a, records right mysterious ways the fly okay that. yeah um anyway there's there's entire bands that do that. There's the various artist ones where each band does one song from it. Most of them are kind of I love that stuff. Yeah, the one I've talked about before is the one where uh, DHT or somebody did a cover of "Listen to Your Heart" from who's who did the original version of that? Um, um not not the "Listen Nazi to band. Your Heart" that that song. Uh, rock set. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so another. So I've heard the original song it was on the radio all the time. It was a big hit. That's a good melody. Yeah, and and then so this band, this this DHT featuring E D M E E, I don't know how to pronounce that, did a cover of it that I thought was fan freaking tastic. The first time I heard it on the, uh, the radio or wherever I was hearing it, I said, "Oh, this is great! A band that I liked from whatever 
came back and did what you just described as Nick Lowe doing, like a slower, quieter version of their hit, right? Isn't this great? They they did, and I was like, and wow, this is, and I didn't realize it was a, it was a cover. I thought it was the band coming back to do their song, being older and wiser, because that's just what it sounds like. It turns out it was someone covering it, but the cover is fantastic. This is the best cover, probably the best cover song I've ever heard, because it is exactly that of like, it's just the older, wiser version of the other song. And the other song is still good, too. And I love, like, sometimes I synchronize this in my, you know, my usually random playing in the car. Mm-hmm. I will play the original and follow it up by the cover because it's just so amazing to hear oh, them that's cool. butt it up against each other like that. So I, I, I totally endorse that. And U2 has done that with a lot of their live versions. Um, so, I, you know, like I said, I think they're going to do weird stuff on this. I'm probably not going to like most of them. But with 40 songs, there's got to be one or two where I'm like, ah, that's kind of like, you know, like yeah, I have a, absolutely. a favorite a favorite live version of Mysterious Ways, which does not sound like the album one, but it sounds great nonetheless. Like, I like the live ones that do live stuff. Not to say that it's like, you know, uh, Marco and his love of fish or jam bands, but like the shaggy, way too long version of Mysterious Ways they do live and how it transitions from the previous song and into the next one in like one seamless sort of gapless playback uh, mashup type thing. Mm-hmm. That's great stuff. That's why I have some of my favorite live recordings of U2 where I make these monster tracks that are four songs connected together just so they don't you know because they blend into each other but that is definitely a different thing than the album and I'm, I'm mostly an album track kind of person we'll be looking out for it um um born fighter oh and labor of lust is the record uh from 19 probably 79 that's got uh cool to be kind Hello, everyone. (laughs) Welcome back. I meant to throw into the regular show, but I do it. uh, Did you see the email from or I don't know what it was. Live streams. Uh, Some one of our listeners sent us a thing. There was a a link to or maybe it was from ATP. Maybe it was our listener. Sorry. It's good. Um, to the John Denver documentary? No. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's it's a BBC documentary about John Denver. It's fairly short, and it's I always find it interesting to see a British, you know, British take on an American celebrity, basically. Sure, sure, sure. Um, What's it called? I this is a problem with putting these YouTube That's okay. I'll just go to Just oh. Watch and search for John Denver. No, no. It's, it's called... Uh, John Denver Country Boy, BBC documentary from 2013. Okay. <clears throat> and and uh, uh, what what uh, what made them send it, if you know? I think we were talk- talking about John Denver and the Muppets as a thing that I listened to, uh, Christmas stuff on an ATP episode. We were talking oh, about Christmas right, songs. Right, 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 yeah. um, and inter- I didn't know that John Denver had a TV show in England. So it's probably why that there's a BBC documentary about him. But, uh, you know, some fun tidbits there about John Denver. And, some, you know, typical, you know, behind the music type stuff. One of the interesting ones was on the recording of one of his famous songs. I think it was, uh, thank God I'm a country boy or no, no, take me home country roads. Probably. Um, they were in the studio and, you know, I got limited studio time. We got to record this. Uh, they wanted, uh, they wanted some sizzle as, uh, Kirk Hamilton would say, is that his name? Right. Strong songs. Oh yeah. Sizzle thump. And yep. Mm. They, needed some sizzle. <laughs> they needed some sizzle. They didn't have they didn't have a, a tambourine or anything like that in the studio. But you got to get the track down now because we've got limited time. 
Uh, and John Denver had change in his pocket, so he whacked the change in his pocket, and they just used that as the uh, the sizzle on, uh, I believe, Take Me Home Country Road. So now you listen to it, and you're like, you know what? That does sound like change in somebody's pocket. That's so cool. Huh. He um, <clears throat> His songs figured in a movie that I watched and really enjoyed this week. <clears throat> and I really like Rebecca Hall. She's been popping up in a lot of things that I like. And she, did you ever see the movie, see the movie Christine? About the killer car? No, this is about, uh, 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 well, I mean, no, spoilers. A thing that happened in Sarasota in the mid-70s where somebody took their own life on air. Um, that was her. And it's this, and but she listens to a lot of John Denver when she's on, on her own. I thought it was a good movie. I liked it a lot. I love Rebecca Hall. She's good in, uh, she's good in a lot of things. Anyway, that, that's, that's my uh, file card <clears throat> on John Denver. I'll say he was a pilot in memory serves. Yeah. Uh, you should watch the documentary. It's, it's, it's concise and it hits all the highlights and talks to the people. Although it's, it's kind of sad when they talk to some of the old uh, uh, music executives and they're like, they're so old that they probably, you know, have trouble remembering and are talking real slow. And it's like, oh, time, time moves on. It does. And, you know, documentaries, I don't know, man. <clears throat> I'm so sorry. <clears throat> I had I had I had fast ramen for dinner and it's not really agreeing with me. Um a two X two X spicy. Yeah, I had some uh noodly Asian thing for dinner too. What'd you have? It was a blue apron. I had blue uh, apron. spicy pork ramen noodles, something, something. Was it good? Yeah, it was actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um this uh, is a topic that came up when I was doing a was on a previous break months ago, coming up with a bunch of uh, ideas for things we could talk about, and some of them were pretty good. And uh, this is one I've been wanting to talk about for a long time because I really I'm curious what you think. The I think what are we calling this? We're saying what is the thing from your childhood that you wish that your kids had had. And uh, as we talked about uh, offline briefly, I contend that we already talked about this. Merlin says we haven't. Either way, we're talking about it now. Well, I just got to throw that in there because then if, if it turns out that we did talk about it before, we got to talk thousand, about white noise. A thousand people are going to be sending us emails say, oh, you talked about this already. No, but you have ideas to talk about now. So that's why we're doing this one because it's better. It's I'm going to go look up talking about white noise. Don't, don't, don't cheating. Don't look it up. Just you've got stuff now. Does it matter if we talked about it before? If you've got new things to say now? No. And and I think it's really self and oddly, ironically, self involved to think that everybody listens to everything. <laughs> I don't People think don't. That everybody listens to every. Everybody's not everything. Nobody Marlon. listens I don't know to if you know that. Everything is not everything, John. <laughs> no, I said everybody's not everything. Oh, it's different. It's, it's legally distinct. <laughs> okay. All right. Huh. All right. <sighs> everybody's not everything everywhere all at once. Okay. Should I should I put on the apron? No. You know what? Maybe I should put on the apron. You shouldn't even have an apron. That's that's where we need to start. Let's start there. I think on the on the see the problem is like I when I cook, um, you know, I make lots of like disgusting food and I and I get splatters on my Mac mm -hmm. Weldon shirts. You just like saying that word. Splatter. Yeah. yeah. I do. And so that's what we're gonna talk about. Yeah. Um do you want me to uh, I can I, I, I want you to begin with at least one of your items to calibrate myself for my stuff. Okay. Well, First of all, I have an opening, what do you call it, an opening statement? That's right. My opening statement is that, to, and this is one of those things, classic Merlin, like it's, it's obvious except it's not, which is that like these are necessarily, necessarily somewhat ahistorical. 
right? So like, I mean, I, one of my beefs, and I, I, I'm going to need like a whole new podcast franchise just to really fully get into this whole rat's nest of, of issues. But, you know, I have kind of a bee in my bonnet about that word normal and getting back to normal and this aspiration that people have for this life they think they used to have and all that kind of stuff. And like, I could talk about that stuff all day because I think that that's sort of nostalgia, ginned up nostalgia, and quite honestly, fake nostalgia is a real problem in America for, for a lot of reasons, some of which are obvious and many of which are not. So I just want to state up front that this is somewhat a historical. I'm going to avoid saying stuff like, probably like, oh, I wish my kids could have seen, I wish my, my kid could have seen the Cincinnati Reds in 1975. Well, you, no. I mean, mine are a little bit more sort of conceptual. You can't bring back things that are gone. And so that, that, that was my main opening statement, just as a framing device. So you want me to do one? Yes, please. I don't know quite how to phrase this exactly, but I, I kind of wish my kid, these are kind of related. The, the second one is going to be about scarcity, <clears throat> a certain kind of scarcity. But the first one is about just the whole idea of mysteries or the idea of things that aren't known now, things that are difficult to discover, and things that ultimately maybe can cannot really be conclusively known. And you know, when you have the world at your fingertips and you've got Wikipedia and you've got all these different things, I mean, this is not a new topic that people talk about, but I mean, <clears throat> you can look up anything anytime and you can find an answer, whether it's true or not, whether it's an eternal answer or not. But like, if you want to find out who was in a movie or you want to find out the, I, there are lyrics to songs I just did not know because I, I, I mean, I was going to do like go by the sheet music. I guess what I, one thing I wish for is I wish I'm glad that we have the resources we have, but I think there is something kind of special about things where you don't even know if it can be known, right? Obviously, I'm not talking about like the, you know, who batted cleanup for the Reds in 1975, probably Pete Rose, but because you can find stuff like that out. But the whole idea of like, I don't know, I don't know if I'm making sense, but there's something that's kind of ineffably cool in retrospect setting aside how great it is to be able to like have basically the equivalent of, you know, thousands of encyclopedias on your phone. That's great. But like, there is also this sense though of like, now that everything theoretically can be known and can be known instantly, um, I don't, it's kind of inchoate, but I feel like there's something kind of missing in like, just not knowing certain things or not knowing what can be known which sounds, I sound basic when I was simple when I say that, but do you know what I mean? There, there's something kind of cool about not knowing everything or not being able to find out everything. And conversely, to, to put it in a more negative way, the way that we immediately, one can jump immediately to trying to find an answer to something immediately, incompletely understanding what it is that you now have learned. And, you know, we get a, we get a, intellectual pond that is impossibly wide and sickeningly shallow. So, you know, you, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even trying to say like, Oh, you had to go really like learn about the Beatles to understand, you know, why people thought Paul was dead or whatever. It's just, there's something that I can't quite put my finger on, but like the, the ineffability of mystery feels like something that people just can't and won't tolerate anymore. And I think I, I, I kind of wish he'd had more access to mysteries. 
I know exactly what you mean because it's you know it's a thing that uh, modern cliche like the vast amount of information we have access to now and the speed we have access to it and you know the relative uh, you know scarcity of all that stuff when we were younger. But my experience of it as someone who lived then and now is so different that it's hard for me to to want it. My, it's hard for me to want this for my children though because like and I've talked about this. My experience of it then was different than your experience from it then as well. Despite the fact that the you know the facts are the same, like there's just so much more information available now, so much easier to everybody. That's just undeniable, right? But my because I didn't know that this would be the future. My feeling as a child was that, and I've talked about this before, about the parameters of the world. When I was a young child, I had this thirst mm-hmm. to know what does, what do we, meaning humanity, what does, what do we know? What does, what does everyone else know? Like, what is, you know, I, I wanted to know the answers. Is Bigfoot real? Are aliens real? Can we travel to distant stars? Can we move faster than the speed of light? Uh, what do we know about the physics and the, the you know, the inner worlds of the atom? Uh, like, I, I wanted to know what the parameter, you know, can you do time travel? Is magic possible? Is telekinesis possible? Is ESP possible? Of course, I need to know yeah, these yeah. answers because yeah. I was super interested. And as far as I was concerned as like a young preteen child, I got all those answers at the library, mm-hmm. like to my satisfaction. Most of them are disappointing. Oh, no telekinesis. Oh, aliens, not real. Oh, faster than light. We don't know I how. really, to speak right. of tele- telekinesis is the moving things, right? I, yeah. I really... I, I, this is, I'm, I was practically like John Roderick level of deeply hoping slash believing that if I figured something out, I mm-hmm. would be able to move things. Se- with my mind. Seems like it should work, doesn't it? <laughs> it feels, it feels so close. And I, I always felt like, I wonder if there's just some block. Yeah. Where... And it didn't help that there was tons of like movies aimed at teens that had people featuring telekinesis around the time we were that age. Yeah. Obviously we knew it was fiction, but it's like, but there's so much fiction about it. We're probably close to doing it. You know, anyway. So my my point with this is that I felt like even though I didn't have access to the internet, I felt like everything I wanted to know, I eventually knew because of the stupid library. And little did I know, like, oh, you don't even know. I didn't know what I didn't know because I didn't have access to the internet. But the right. flip side of that is I kind of feel for kids these days because there is so much information and they need a skill that I didn't need, which is how do you like finding the needle in the haystack? throwing out the the lies and obvious scams, figuring out how to evaluate sources for reliability. I just had what was in the library, which was pretty much like gospel, right? Now, there was different sources and, you know, the National Enquirer versus the New York Times versus the Encyclopedia Britannica versus the Dictionary. You'd still weigh the quality of the sources, but it was nothing compared to what people are bombarded with now. Yeah, you can get an answer really fast. And it's yes. probably right if it's something simple, like who is in this movie? But if it's anything remotely complex, the skills required to actually dig that out of the mountain of data that is the internet are so much harder than the skills we had to do to learn how to use the card catalog and the microfiche machine, right? So they're they're bombarded by so much more. One thing a young person today might have in common with the you and me of old and lots of other people is once you find what feels like the answer, you kind of stop that pursuit. Like once you know you know, who played Lumpy on Leave it to Beaver, the actor Frank Bank. Like, that is that is that is knowable. And like, but the thing is, there is, there's a lot, some of the most interesting stuff in life, before we even like get deeply into stuff like metaphysics, some of those interesting stuff in life, there, there's not, there's contention about like, like if you went and looked up Morgellons, like if you looked at, <laughs> or however it's pronounced, Morgellons, whatever, mm-hmm. if you looked that up, and last time I looked at Wikipedia, it said that like, you know, in that usual kind of, 
you know, mm-hmm. mumbly way, it goes like, well, you know, this is not a scientific thing and this has never been proven and blah, blah, blah. Whereas, of course, you know, you can find plenty of information about like diagnosing yeah. and collecting uh, yeah, the bits. The internet, and, what, whatever answer you want to get is out there somewhere available for you to get. It's a confirmation <laughs> bias machine in a lot of ways. Yeah, and, and obviously that, you know, some answers are easier to find than others, but still it's just so much more difficult to wade. Even the simple things like what year was this movie put out? And at this point, there's so much pollution that like no one has an agenda to put the wrong year on a movie. But if the wrong year gets on a movie in the wrong place at the wrong time, fast forward 10 years and that wrong year is everywhere. Because it's, nobody because knows, it's like a game of telephone somewhere. Yeah. And like, it's not anyone's doing it. It's not anyone's fault. It's just the machine like malfunctioning and spreading incorrect information that is too trivial for anyone to care about to fix. Right. And now that becomes the answer. And it's just, you know, it's, anyway, it's, 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 it's difficult. But like I had my feeling in my youth was I did have access to all the information in the world at the library and I used it to pursue all the avenues that I was interested in, finding all of them to be dead-ended at very depressing places where, oh, fusion energy, yeah, probably not for another 10 to 20 years, little did I know, right? You know, AI, people have been saying it's coming in 10 years, it's still not here, it's probably not going to happen. Like, just learning all that and kind of feeling out the parameters of the world, in some ways it's fun to say, these are the frontiers. Like, so if you want to grow up and learn stuff, this is where the frontier of X is, this is where the frontier of Y is. kind of what I got into computers because the frontier of computers was like, it was here, and the next year it was there, and next year it was there. I was like, wow, mm-hmm. we are really shoving the frontier of computers out constantly, whereas the frontiers of physics are moving way slower. Like, mm-hmm. it looks like a lot of exciting stuff was happening around Einstein, but right now the frontiers of, of physics are just not moving that fast relative to me in elementary school and, and middle school. But the frontiers of computers, every year I go to the library and look up some new thing, and it's like, wow, look at that, or see some new thing. You know, that's kind of probably why I got into computers. But mm-hmm. I totally get where you're coming from, but I... I, the way I feel for kids is that they have just too much, too much information to sift through mm-hmm. this, this skill, they, especially young kids, the skill like young kids name, like you teach a little kid in elementary school, to use a card catalog to learn about frogs, right? They're, what is the equivalent of that today? You can't teach a kid to Google the word frogs. Like there's just, <laughs> there's, and mm-hmm. there's no kid internet for them to get good answers for frogs. They're going to get freaking Pepe. It's just, I, so I do, I do feel for yeah, yeah, and, um, but like, yeah. Also, like, though, I mean, the the thing that I I'm not trying to say of oh, these kids today, because you know, I did, and I, I maybe I'm making too big a point of this, but I think it's a big deal, which is that, and this has something to do with confirmation bias in some ways. Where like, if you think you know what the answer to this is, and then you find the answer that you know, do you pursue that further? Do you do you keep going? And I again, I'm not even talking about like you know. Did did Mr. Trump actually win the you know the election in in you know 2020? Not I mean it's it's that it you know what it is it's it's just that like the I guess we kind of have both said it already which is like not even knowing what's knowable and I guess you were I was a pretty good I was a good student and I knew how to use a library but my old man remark on this and as ever I'm going to try and limit my number of strictly old man remarks but. Something uh, that's so important to me, just maybe maybe because of my brain, maybe because of liberal arts, I don't know, but just the lack of context to information. And that context can mean, well, the whole point of context is it depends, it depends, it depends. Like, it depends on the context, right? And so, you know, there there are people who are probably, you could go look up a quote-unquote fact and find out that, you know, not, you don't even have to go all the way down to flat earthers or anything like that. But just <clears throat> this whole thing of like, 
I agree with you. I agree with you. There's, there's, there's too much out there. I'm talking mostly more about, you know, I'm not even talking about Santa. See, I'm always talking about what I'm not talking about. But I, anyway, you get, you get the, you get the basic gist. It's, um, it's, I think it's in weird ways. Let's put it this way. You've been in groups where there's a question that needs to be settled. And like, when's the last time you were with a group of people who all had smartphones and there was something that needed to be settled, but nobody took out their phone? Because somebody will, because somebody wants to be the one who wins and who finds it. In most cases, you know, let's say even over 80% of the time, it's going to be a pretty uncontested, as we used to call it, fact. But, you know, I, it's just the... Now today, I think there's the illusion of knowledge in some ways, or there's the illusion of... Don't even get me started on the illusion of expertise. I think that that phenomenon of the people looking up on the phone, I I relish that because I think that's great. I, I didn't like the the inability to do that. I didn't like because no one's going to go to the library to look this up. I like being able to look it up now. Yeah. But what it, what it, the thing that it revealed to me is how like kind of the things same thing we talked about of like uh, carefully choosing words or caring about what you're writing or whatever. The mm-hmm. fact that this information is available at a moment's notice reveals how little people care about looking it up or getting it right. Like. My, you know, when I back when I was writing, so, especially my, when there's a like a Google card for it. Yeah. Like, so, so like if someone's writing something in a blog post, if I write something in a blog post and it contains an easily checkable fact that I am like 100 percent sure of, I still Google it just to double check. Is this oh, the right that, word? That's, that's me in quotes. Yeah. I will pursue the quote. For, for sure. Way, way beyond quote investigator. Like I will I will keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And that's where I, I find out stuff like. That one quote from Gandhi that I've been using for years was actually mm-hmm. a, a T-shirt from Mother Jones in 1982. Yeah, oh, but but that's but that's like actually making an effort. I'm talking about the things that make no effort. Like, what is the capital of Maryland? Mm-hmm. You can check that so quickly, and everybody can check it so quickly. And it, you don't need super expert skills at, at BS filtering to find to you know to find the correct answer to that. Like like you said, probably Google is going to tell you, but people will in a piece of writing reference the capital of Maryland, write the wrong thing and never check it. No matter how easy it is. Like I, the the freaking Google Docs thing is probably putting a green squiggly underline which means you've gotten the wrong capital for Maryland and they still <laughs> wouldn't right click that squiggle to correct the capital. Like they just don't care no matter how because, easy because it is. Because they're doing it from memory or guessing. Because they just don't care to check cuz they're cuz they're so so sure that they know it cuz they don't care if it's wrong whereas for people like us the beauty of the internet is we can take like literal fraction of a second to double check that to notice the red squiggle under a misspelled word, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like people see those red squiggles. I think people spend like a decade using a computer, and like, and they just just always think I themselves. I wonder why we I see red squiggles sometimes. Like it's just right click it for the love of God. Like just I know, it's not I spelled know. right. Yeah, yeah, and there's it's and and the, the the case that I'm not gonna make, but I will continue to think about is that. I, the, the other kind of old man bummer part of this is like, I wonder what the long-term effects of that are. Well, let's, let's take what you're talking about here. Let's take, like, it's easy enough. And I, I don't know. Is it Baltimore? I don't know. I think it's probably Baltimore. Oh, the capital of Maryland? Yeah. Annapolis. Damn. Um, um, I remember, uh, the moops, but, Mm -hmm. but it's more that like, that seems to be for so many of us, that's such like a closed loop. Like question mark appears above the character's head. Person types it in, gets it, and they're done. And, you know, part of my joy of being an encyclopedia kid and a trivia kid and an almanac kid, I just, I love reference books. 
I would read reference books for fun. And a lot of times, I mean, not just, you know, World Book or Encyclopedia Britannica, but like Almanacs or the Book of Lists or any of those things, which are, you know, kind of reference book adjacent. But I mean, I'm not trying to prescribe this to future generations, but you do tend to get more context if you have to poke around more than just you know, punch in a question. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just like, but think of another comparison is like calculators, like knowing how to use a calculator. People were always like, Oh God, you can't bring, it was so wild in whatever that was 10th or 11th grade, I guess in algebra or algebra two, when like you had to get, uh, I almost said a TI 994 a, that is a computer when you had to get a TI 30, you know, the one every, what was it? Yeah, I think. Yeah, but like one of those, it had been like you had to have that. But there was always this sort of implicit, um, what the British would call a frown, where people would think like, well, if you have calculators, you never have to learn arithmetic. Well, it's like, no, it's not that you don't have to learn arithmetic. You still have to know things like ideally order of operations. You still have to know all that kind of stuff. It's just that, you know, you shouldn't have to make your own ketchup if you want to eat fries. Calculators are a tool that we use to find the answers to arithmetic problems and other <laughs> math problems. I saw a tweet from somebody I follow uh, today uh, where someone was saying they were they were doing some uh, calculations on like the calculator app on their phone. And they said, every time I do this, I think back to my fourth grade teacher who uh, you know, we had a box of calculators in the room. And they said, you're allowed to use these sometimes when you're doing your math work, but not all the time because when you're in your adult life, you won't have a calculator with you all the time. It's true. They have a box. <laughs> now everyone has a calculator with them all <laughs> yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, and, but I mean, that should be, if I may say as an old man, that should be a lesson to all of us. Like if it's very clear to you that calculators did not mean that nobody would ever have to learn arithmetic and higher mathematics. Well, you know, they still do when they need to. And also the idea that you're not going to be able to rely on them because they're a rarity and who's going to carry around a calculator with them all day. Which don't was probably you, don't assume, mostly, you know, you know what everyone's mostly true at the time, but by the mid to late eighties, I mean, I was getting them in the mail for subscribing to a magazine. Yeah, and now, and now literally all of us carry them all the yes. time because our smartphones do everything, including being a calculator. Right. Right. Anyway, I don't want to drag that out, but that's, so mine is something having to do with mysteries. Um, mm-hmm. give me one of yours. The thing that comes to mind to me, like this is actually not true because I don't wish my kids had this unless I would have some control over reality of how it would turn out. But the thing the thing that I remember fondly from my childhood and also kind of with horror and it's kind of like a combination of the two things that we talk about this all the time. Like you remember it fondly, but you're also shocked that it happened is my my sort of free range childhood. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where, you know, the, the, the joke we always make is not literally not a joke that, you know, that you would leave the house in the morning and your parents wouldn't see you again until the streetlights came on. Right. And they had no idea where you were that entire time and they didn't care. Yeah. I mean, in in Madeline's family, I mean, I don't think this was formalized, but the rule of thumb was you have to, you like you at a certain age, you have to be home before the streetlights come on. But by another age, like you can't come home until the streetlights come on. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. you need to be, you need to be out there. And she lived on a cul-de-sac, you know, near a river and like everybody knew everybody, et cetera, et cetera. But the, you're talking about like that. You're talking about the thing where like a a kid and consequ- also the parents 
like aren't hung up about the idea that the kid is not yeah. visible right now. Yeah, and for me, as Gen X kid, I'm a latchkey kid. We had, we mm-hmm. had a roving band of kids with BMX bikes. The entire neighborhood was essentially our large outdoor house. Everyone's backyard was our backyard. We'd cut through other people's backyards. We were in groups of people. We would pop into someone's house to get a snack, drink from this person's hose. Go, like and no one knew or cared where we were going. We were doing dangerous things that we shouldn't have been doing all the time. Things where people could and did get, you know, cuts that required stitches and break bones. Nobody died, thankfully, but that was a thing that happened occasionally. That kind of free-range childhood is so foreign to what my kids experienced. And the reason I don't wish my kids had it is because I don't want them dying in a stupid accident. I don't want them blowing their fingers off by hammering a nail into a CO2 cartridge, a thing that actually happened in my childhood, not to me. Um, I don't want them... I knew I want a kid in my neighborhood... Like, you know, kids and fireworks and yeah, I, yeah, I don't they want them with the fireworks, fireworks. They started lighting pools of yeah. gasoline on fire mm-hmm. and the kid like was really horribly burned mm-hmm. and had to wear like a neck thing. And he had that, you know, that disfiguring burn yeah, thing. Yeah. And, but no, but like it's, you know, it this is, again, so much of this has to do with context or what did I say initially? A historical, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, even if you lived in exactly the same house in exactly the same neighborhood, well, Heraclitus would tell you that's never been the same neighborhood. That neighborhood's different every yeah. minute to and, minute, and, let alone just decade because, to decade. Yeah, and just because that didn't happen to me doesn't mean it wouldn't happen to my kids. But I, I remember valuing and enjoying the experience of that free-range childhood. All the things that I learned in that free-range childhood, I think I mentioned on the show, I learned to play every every position in every sport of the mm-hmm. major American sports because you were forced to because you were in a, a, a you know a group a roving group of feral. It might children. depend on what ball was available. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're gonna play football. We're gonna play hockey. We're gonna play soccer. We're gonna play baseball. Like I learned all those sports. I learned the rules to those sports. I learned how to play those sports. I learned how to to be a hockey goalie and use the hockey goalie equipment. I learned how mm-hmm. to you know roller skate so I could play roller hockey. Like you know, learned to play football. I was the quarterback. I was the receiver. I did, like all of that was in the free range childhood sort of self-directed feral children doing stuff, you know, running from bullies, you know, bullying younger kids, <laughs> setting things on fire, cutting ourselves, making ramps out of garbage, jumping our bikes off of them, getting hit John, by cars John, you, on our you bicycles. You know what I miss is making forts. Yeah, making forts a lot for of sure. Forts. We made a lot of forts. Making dirt bike tracks, all, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. Uh, I, you know, I, say, I wish my kids had experienced that if they can experience that like I did where I was not grievously injured and I didn't die. <laughs> Yes. Which is not guaranteed, which is well, part of the but, experience. You know, that's, I mean, there, I have mixed feelings about this because, here, okay, here's one for you. Um, I could probably ask this to one of my devices right now. Are cars safer today than they were in 19, say, 52? Mm-hmm. Would that be 70 years ago? Um, and the depending, I mean, the, the easy answer in some ways is they're absolutely safer than they mm-hmm. used to be. How can I count the ways? I remember driver's ed saying like, you know, one difference that was made at, at a time was like cars were huge, but roads were narrow. Roads are wider than they used to be. The windows are not made of plate glass. They now, you know, break up into little pieces. You've got seat belts. You've got, I mean, no, what no more toggle switches on the dashboard. That's another one that came up in one of my, well, my no more dashboard made of metal and yeah, no do you, seat remember, belt. do you remember the toggle switches on the dashboard? Like actual toggle switches, like in an airplane? Like I've, like I've seen that in old cars. Yeah, it was like, you know what a toggle switch is. Like I do know, you know what a toggle switch is. Like, metal, I feel right? like, I feel like um, Mercedes used to have those. Yeah, and they got rid of those because you get in an accident and the Take metal toggle switch would get embedded mm-hmm. in your skull. Yeah. And you would, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's a pointy metal stiff object. Forget about so, padded so dashboard. Now, now here's me being that guy. 
you know, hey, dingus, are cars safer now than they were in 1952? Well, follow-up question, to whom? Cars are a lot less safe to pedestrians than they used to be because now more people are driving very large cars with very high bumpers. We don't need to go super into it, but... Ca- cars are actually more safer for pedestrians because they're... Not to they're, pedestrians. They're, 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 no, for, for cars, not trucks or SUVs, but cars <laughs> yeah. with actual cars are safer for pedestrians. What I'm saying is that your, your, kid, your kid could still die just as easy today as they ever could before. You don't control the world, you know, and you, you set these... Uh, parents set rules based on their own sensitivities. This is a problem. A lot of what we do is trying to avoid that most intolerable of things to most people, especially Americans, which is I'm never going to make that mistake again. I'm never going to order dim sum from that place again. We're never going to use that place for overnight shipping again. Yeah. Well, and pretty soon you're like, well, like, yeah, I'm never flying on that airline again. Well, there's only like five airlines. What are you going to do? Right? So, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we, we create these, I feel like, adults, parents, guardians, whomever, tend to create these rules based on their own hangups and their own um, level of comfort or discomfort with certain kinds of ambiguity. There's some ambiguity that they can handle and then others that they absolutely can't. Ideally, there should be some kinds of ambiguities that you can handle. The ambiguity in the, in your case, what, probably early 80s was, I don't know where my kid is right now, but you know he mostly comes home every night around the same time and he's never needed stitches, so I hope that's going okay. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was the tolerance, the ability to tolerate a stupid death, right? And the, I think in, in the more modern parent, and this is true of all parenting, like how willing are you to tolerate the idea that your kid died in a stupid way, doing something dumb that could have been preventable with the tiniest bit of supervision? Like, hey, they were setting things on fire, and you had no idea they were doing it, and they were doing it literally in your house, and you were in the other room and didn't notice. You'd feel bad. You'd be like. That was preventable. If my kid's going to die, they should die because a car skidded out of control. No one could see it coming. They died, right? But like stupid deaths. And then the the scope of what constitutes a stupid preventable death shrinks and shrinks until they're like, well, if my kid never does X, they're never going to have Y happen to them because that would be (laughs) stupid. And it just gets narrow and narrow. And I feel like our parents were like, well, my kid's not swimming in the East River pushing pieces of poop out of the way. That would be a stupid way to die. Because, you know, antibiotics aren't invented and they, you know, die from poop. Um, but it's fine if they make ramps out of gar- the neighbor's garbage and jump them with their BMX bikes and almost get hit by a car. Because that they, they'd be okay with that death, but they wouldn't be okay with the stupid one. And at a certain well, point, not, like... They would not be okay with any death, not okay, but, I, but like, they I would, take they, your meaning. Like, it, it would have been within the parameters of like, oh, Timmy died the way children die all the time versus like... For I think for our generation, it was like the the number of ways we were willing to let our children die and feel and feel like we wouldn't feel like at the funeral that we are the world's worst parents has narrowed so much, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like you, you mean they were unattended and they were three. You should feel ashamed. How are you leaving a three year old unattended? Whereas right, two right. generations ago, leaving a three year old unattended, it's like, well, they're three, they're fine, they can walk, they can talk. It's fine. Well, you will hear those periodic stories. Um... I mean, this is extremely anecdotal. I don't, I don't even have, I could look it up, but like you hear these stories about t- today. It's so funny. Talk about context. I feel like I have read more than one story in the last few years about like CPS or similar being called because mm-hmm. heaven for fend, there's a, there's a 10 year old kid alone mm-hmm. at the house with their, maybe with their like seven year old. Or walking to school, walking a block to the elementary school. Mm-hmm. Or like walk to the playground by themselves. And like, 
and then everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people, the mommy blog crowd just collapses on that and is like, you know, kind of how could you? And it's like, well, I was at home alone a lot when I was 10. And, and I'm not saying, hey, look at me, I turned out right. All right. But like, it's, I do continue. Here's what I would say if, if this is useful or not, but take it in the way it's intended. Interrogate the things that you think are, are, have to be rules about your family and your kids in particular. And then be somewhat rational about looking at how much of that spins out of your own hangups. And I understand, like if if you if your brother died from autoerotic asphyxiation at eight, I understand why you don't want your kid to die that way. That would just be too much for you. Could be an automobile accident. Could be whatever it is. You know, could be get your kid vaccinated. Whatever. But I, what I'm saying is, like, I do think it is. There's a lot of value. And you're never going to be perfect, but you can at least interrogate the things that you feel like are like unmovable rules about things and really kind of, as you say, back solve from that and go like, well, okay. And like, how relevant is that to what's happening now? I mean, have I updated my idea of why that rule or that, you know, that edict is in place? And is that does that play well with the world that my kid is actually in rather than the one I think I used to be in or the one I imagine they're in or the world in which I, I need to be seen as a doting parent? Yeah. And to be clear, uh, I think I had too much freedom as a child, but too much freedom feels exhilarating when you're the child getting it. So yeah. that's what I'm, that's especially, what I'm getting Especially at. because you, you're always going to, I don't know if my kid does, I don't know what my kid gets, gets away with because- He's so dependable and so like, you mm-hmm. know, just cool and like, you know, just buses home, goes to places, does things and it all works out fine. If he's getting away with stuff, Hakuna Matata. But like, I would always, of course, push the envelope, whether that's staying out a little bit later than I'm supposed to or going into an area like, what's the phrase we used to use? Out of bounds. Like going places that you're not supposed to go. Kids are always going to do that. But I don't know. I, 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 you want your kid to live. There's a thing I said in the wisdom document that I think is pretty smart, which is that you spend most of your child's life trying to make sure that they don't die. Your job is to keep your kid alive. And so you keep trying to keep them from being dead. But at a certain point, you need to begin converting over to the idea that you also need to not prevent them from being alive. You know, you need to not prevent them from becoming their own person. And like, there's no way they can clap out of all the accidents and BS that happen in life. And like, I do think there, but I do feel like in my head anyway, there's a certain implicit, like, I don't know. I I think a lot of people feel like if they fret enough, they can stop anything bad from happening. Yeah. So I, I I think my line item here is I, I, I wish my kids had thing I had that I wish my kids had is I wish they had the exhilaration of too much freedom without the trauma of too much freedom because there was trauma of too much freedom. Forget about actual things happening. You mean like there where you break, many you break a window, things, you break you know, a window and where you're in trouble, that kind of thing? Like just how many, have you seen one of your friends break a limb in front of you? How many times have you seen that? Have you seen your kid, one of your friends get a cut that wouldn't stop bleeding and they had to go rush to their, the closest adult's house and be taken to the doctor, right? Yeah. There's, there is trauma of too much freedom as well. I don't wish that on my kids, let alone the trauma of actually being injured or something terrible happened to you or being sexually abused by an older kid. Like, too much freedom, to be clear. Too much means they're an excess, right? Yes. I wish that my kids had the exhilaration of too much freedom, which That's I good. remember. 
and didn't have to experience the trauma of too much freedom. But sometimes the part of the trauma of too much freedom that in the, you know, the Gen X latchkey thing was the feeling of neglect that, yeah, my both my parents work and I come home and I've got a key to get in my house. and I come home and I'm alone and none of my friends are around and I'm in middle school and I feel miserable. And it's like, like, I don't wish my kids had that at all. So, you know, like I, despite all the things we're saying about, you know, you shouldn't be, you have parents be arrested for a 10 year old kid walking home from elementary school block or whatever. I do think in general, the trend is positive, but as always, people overshoot and yeah, and yeah. get in their inside their heads about. It. So that's that's when I think about my childhood to talk about the ahistorical, I can connect with the exhilaration of too much freedom, and I tend to push away all the other aspects that I wouldn't want my kids to have. Right, right, which you couldn't really prevent anyway. Um, I would like to do one more. Are you up for one more? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm gonna let you pick. I can either do. So a certain kind of scarcity or a certain kind of community? Do the community one. I was raised, we were nominally Christian. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I, we didn't go to church, right? Mostly. We, I'd been to church. Like, I'd been to Sunday school. But we did not go to church every Sunday. We, we said grace and, you know, um, I, I said a prayer every night. We were, we were Christian in that sort of like beige... Cincinnati. You're a Christian way. in the white supremacist way. It was Cincinnati. We we're very near <laughs> Indiana. Yeah, like was, the main tenets of Christianity. Yeah, Indiana <laughs> casts a large shadow. Uh, we so, but like the point being that, like, just to clarify here, like until the age of seven, we were not actively religious. We did not. We had theoretically a church. I mean, I I knew it when we passed by it, but we didn't. We weren't part of a like a community there. We did not. We neither we neither offered nor received things beyond the occasional going to church and singing, you know, old rugged cross or whatever. Uh, long story short, my dad got sick. Um, uh, would eventually die. My dad got sick in April 74, died October 74. So that summer of 74, um, somebody offered to take me to vacation Bible school at a Christian church near where we lived. And it was fantastic. And I loved it. I liked the people. It was, it's that kind of, you know, it's, it's a very, the Protestant church that we went to, uh, White Oak Christian Church, uh, Blue Rock Road, Cincinnati, um, you know, it's really mellow in a lot of ways. It was not weird. We were, there was no snake handling. There was no speaking in tongues. It was in some ways very, to me anyway, as a seven-year-old kid from seven to 12, I went to church there every Sunday. And um, what I'm trying to get at though, is that I as as horrible as 1974, the second half of 1974 was for me and my mom and our whole family, like, I don't know what we would have done without that church. The minister, uh, who would later have to quit because he was dunking the uh, secretary, but that minister was there the day that my mom told me about my dad. Like, he drove us to this park and, like, kind of hung in the background while my mom told me my dad was gone. And, but that guy was there for us constantly. He was, we weren't members of the church. Like he would just go visit my dad in the hospital dying of cancer. And eventually my dad, it was really sad. My dad did get baptized in the church, you know, Protestant baptism, et cetera. Um, so here's the thing, like that community experience is just indelible to me. The pals that I made there. I was one of those kids where like, my kid has this a little bit now with, these are my friends from elementary school. These are my friends from the junior high I went to for a while. These are, you know, you have those like groups of friends. So I had, there was a Venn diagram. I had church friends and I had school friends and some of my church friends were school friends, like Eric and John and everybody, right? 
But anyway, sorry to carry on and almost cry, but I wish I, so in addition to a certain kind of scarcity, I wish my kid had a certain kind of community. And I'm not trying to get into the whole thistle of, of religion and faith and all of those things, but like that church and those groups, Wednesday nights, you have potluck dinners. Everybody brings, you know, usually craft macaroni and cheese and rolls or whatever. But it was really, it was cool. We had our own, we had junior church, which was like, you didn't go to the sanctuary usually until you were like 13 or so. But there was a, you know, we had an organist and guitar player and we sang songs and like, I mean, there are elements and constellations of Christianity that were useful to me in some ways as a child. I don't have a bad word, unlike you, I don't have a bad word to say about Christianity. I wish there were a more plug-and-play version of community at hand for my kid. You know, remember when I first heard Starbucks referred to as the third place? You got home, you got work, and Americans really want a third place. I think there's something to be said for the kind of community you get at a cool church. I don't know what that would be for my kid. It's too late now. But that's something I really... And to explain why, if it's not obvious, well, obviously, like the having other kids that, you know, are kind of more or less in your demo, that are outside of school, you're not stuck in that class all day, but also stuff like helping and being helped. The last page of the bulletin each week was like people who are in the hospital, please go visit them, like that kind of stuff, right? So anyway, that's, and I think there were lessons to that that I really treasured, like what it means to be kind to somebody that you don't even know that well, just because they need it and you want to give it. Boy, we could all really learn a lot from that. And certainly then just the, all the community stuff of like getting to know this person, that person, their family, you become friends with them and you have this, you know, I don't think, I don't have anything like that right now. And I wish he'd had that. Yeah. I, I definitely know what you mean. And I, when I look at that from a modern perspective and try to think of like why, why that's less common, setting aside the, uh, you know, decrease in religiosity of uh, Americans, which I think is a positive trend. Obviously, the mm-hmm. negative corollary to that is if nothing replaces that community, like why why do why does that community experience seem more scarce now than it was? And I think, I, you know, looking at the lens, the same lens of like the the kid freedom, I think part of it is obviously community, like anything else, had its upsides and its downsides. And I feel like the <laughs> downsides are sure. so easy, were so easy to identify. Setting aside religion, just like you know the various community things. There's yeah. always going to be well, downsides like, like in any... group think and peer pressure and social social no. pressure and all that uh, kind let's of stuff. Take example like uh, Boy Scouts. What a great community of the Boy Scouts. Oh, sometimes people get diddled by the you know sexual which is right? a, which is really a goddamn shame because Scouts are great. Right. Exactly. But 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 then so, so the bad thing is easy to identify. <laughs> it's, a big, and, it's a big bad thing. Yeah, and everyone but, can yeah. agree that it's bad, right? Mm-hmm. And so what happens is in in every kind of group community type setting it's so easy to see the bad things and point them out and an easy way to avoid the bad things is let's just not do this community thing anymore right even in things like family like i think about the closest analog i have for mine is you know we did go to church every single sunday i didn't particularly consider the church a community but it was actually big for more bigger for my sister than it was for me and my parents were into it but the closest analog for me is our family we all lived it was a bunch of you know uh, both sides of our family had some people who lived close enough to us that we saw our family a lot it was it was a common thing to go to my mother's mother's house for a big dinner with my aunts and my uncles and my cousins like it wasn't like a, you would just go there and do that right i knew a lot of my cousins growing up like it was just you know we we i we were closer to family they were all around the new york metro we saw our family a lot Family. Everybody loves family. It's great. Every, you know, who wouldn't love to have a big family? You hear people talk about it all the time. But n- not that my family had this, but 
family in general, we all know what the easy downsides to that. Again, getting back to, oh, sometimes that uncle gives me a funny look. Uh, my, you know, my aunt is always teasing me because she doesn't understand that I'm gay and I don't quite know it yet either. But every time right. I go there, I feel bad. Well, here, because- here, how's this for a real big, broad one? In certain communities, your boundaries are not something people want to negotiate with you. Whether mm-hmm. that's being kissed and pinched or whether that's being instructed on sin or whatever it is, I, as a loner and mm, part-time introvert, I it's very important to me that we understand and respect each other's boundaries. And a, a, a quote-unquote community, like whatever is inside that community, let's say the can just says community, you know there's going to be somebody in there who's kind of, kind of a piece of crap. And family is the one you think everyone can agree on. It's like, okay, well, maybe huh. you're, these groups like Boy Scouts might have problems, but family is uh, universally good. It's like, no. And so I think what happens is people can easily identify the downsides. And then they just decide the easiest solution to this is we're not going to live in giant extended family communities anymore. We're going to live distant from our parents because we want to get the hell away from them. Right. We're not going to, my parents aren't going to live with us for the rest of their life after we get married because that's just not what we do anymore because right, right, there's right. enough scenarios where the dad is abusive or the aunt can't handle the fact that your kid is gay or like whatever the thing, or like your family never forgives well, like you that, from marrying. there's just somebody in the family who just can't let something go. Right. And like, and it's, like, and it's like you, you're dreading I, I bet everybody's got at least a few people like this in their life where you're like, I dread events with my family just because I'm pretty sure, let's even say just this one person will be there and they there's something they they just can't let it go. And like, it becomes a trial for me that like I have to go and like, you know what I'm saying? You have mm-hmm. to go like spar. That's, and I agree with you that, that whole, like people say family, like it's just this unalloyed good. And it's like, I don't know, man. Yeah. And, and, and I would say the same thing about religion or Boy Scouts or the, you know, the, the Mason Lodge or whatever, like all these different community things. And so I think like, the, again, a, an upside is we've become as a culture better at identifying these things and not tolerating them. This is what we call progress. But the downside is that lots of the previous sort of mandatory communities that we had that were extremely harmful to a lot of people have been eliminated because the bad things are so bad that everyone can agree on them. We haven't figured out how to also still have a community without the bad things. So we just don't have the community now, which to be clear, I'm not saying you should all be forced to see your family where, you know, your uncle sexually abuses you. No, obviously. But again, it's kind of like the childhood with too much freedom thing. We can, we can recognize that we're glad that we got rid of the bad thing but also recognize that we haven't quite figured out how to reproduce the good aspects yeah, in a safer way. Really good. Yeah. Because I think that's what yeah. we crave. It's like, I want the good things. And right, some people just right, simplify right. it to say, I want, to, I want everyone to be forced to see their family. Like, that's not the solution, but it, like we have a harder challenge in front of us now. That's so is, interesting you would you know, say that because like now I'm thinking, because you've gotten good at making me doubt myself, when I say community, well, is there any community as such that exists outside of, or can exist outside of all these things that we see as a downside that you just described. I mean, there's there's the modern phenomenon of the internet empowering people to find communities that are geographically separated that could never coalesce before because it was, they were too far away from each other. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All all the various marginalized communities and everything. And that is an example of technology and now, but 
but every community has the problems of bad actors and problems. It's like, that's the problem we have to solve for ourselves. So we've, we've put, put it this way. I think we got, we got good at expunging the bad faster than we got good at reproducing the good. Right. And so we, yeah, for a yeah, while yeah. there, we expunged all the bad and didn't have a replacement for the good. And I feel like we're crawling back. Right, up that and it's, it's like people wanting to quote unquote, I know every so funny, everybody who goes to Mastodon, and decides they're going to spend a lot of time on Mastodon, which is fine. But they, a lot of them say the same thing. Hey, look, I'm not looking for a replacement for Twitter. And it's like, well, dude, you are absolutely looking for a replacement for Twitter. You would not have been there if it hadn't been for Twitter being such a garbage fire. That's not a problem except to say, you know, do be aware. You can't replace one community with another. Like, all right, I got one more thing and then I want to hear yours. Um, have you seen The Righteous Gemstones? I feel like you haven't. I have not. Okay, it's a Danny McBride joint, and I love it. Our whole family loves it so much. Um, I'll try, I won't spoil this, but we see something. Season two is so good. And at the top of season two, we see that the patriarch of the family, John Goodman, he has a past that we had not known about in some detail. And a character from his past, played by um, Eric Roberts, comes back into his life. And we were like two episodes into season two, and you, know, you can guess the kind of things that happen when somebody with a slightly, you know, sketchy past who's now running a mega church, a super church or whatever it's called, like runs into somebody from his past. And I said something to Billy that I, at the time I thought I was being really smart. And, and now I, I think about it, I think I'm being really, really smart. And I said, I said, you know, I said, you know me, right? Like, I'm not like advice, dad. I'm not like give you lessons, dad. But I said, the way that, the way that Eli has to deal with junior is a pretty good example of a phrase I almost never use, I says to my kid. I say, I say, Junior is a bad influence on Eli, on John Goodman's character. I said, no, I think that's really important. I said, because, you know, like when I was coming up, it was always like, oh, you go with that crowd and you're getting up smoking pot. Or you do this, you, you run with this fast crowd. This is, this is apropos of a lot of what we were just talking about, I think, right? All this, like, you got to stay away from the bad kids. And like, it's some kind of a thing that's going to rub off on you, like, you know, like, like, like TB or scabies or something. But I said, what, what I get from this, the way that Junior coming back into Eli's life, when I say he's a bad influence, he... John Goodman knows that Eric Roberts is no good. He knows that he should not have Eric Roberts in his life. And he knows that if, when, whether, eventually, Eric Roberts is back in his life, this is the brilliant part. He knows that he is a bad influence. He knows that when he's around this guy, bad stuff happens. That could be that they commit a crime, but it could also be that you use more coarse language than you would want to use, to, to give maybe a silly example. So, like, the reason I'm mentioning this to you is, like, I think I, we have all these fantasies about what causes problems in our life. We have all these reckons about our life and consequently add on some extra anxieties and make it about your kid's life. And it's like, I think one way... And, and John and I, Roderick and I went back and forth just a little bit on Monday about this. I was disagreeing with him about something he feels pretty strongly about. But if we were to take that Righteous Gemstones example, learn, learn the kinds of people and the kinds of situations that make you be somebody whom you don't, want to, don't like to be, right? If, if being around the person who knows that you are molested and thinks it's funny, like it's totally okay for you to have a boundary where you're not exposed to that person. People who bring out the side of you that you wouldn't like is really smart, avoiding that. You know what I mean? So when I say bad influence to me is not like, oh, well, now you're going to go buy a bong because that kid from the trailer park 
you know, rode by on a skateboard. It's more that like learn to develop a sense for people who bring out the better or the worse in you, or put differently, they bring out the you you hated being, or they, or they, on the other side, maybe they can bring out the you that you'd like to be. And that's the community you want to build. People who like respect boundaries and think they're kind of cool. <laughs> maybe this is a dream, but do, do you know what I'm saying? A bad influence is not somebody who like peer pressures you into doing something. A bad influence is somebody who you know brings out things in you that are not the thing that you want. And that's the type of thing that's very difficult for kids to really hear because I remember being told it a thousand times as a kid and ignoring that advice entirely. I mean, don't you remember being told like, oh, you know, the if, the whole idea constantly, of peer pressure. Const- constantly the- instructed. That's why I wasn't, John, I wasn't allowed to play in the woods. Like there's all kinds of rules and it was always these, these, these sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, almost apparitions, specters, like these make-believe, like made up, uh, um, I'm not going to say kids, I'm not going to say people, that there's these things out in the world that will like visit bad upon me. Yeah, I, I think you were within the, the the blast radius of the satanic panic and my, and I kind of was, but in my generation, it was just the, the, the budding, the later, you know, I don't know, you were, you're, you consider yourself Gen X? Yeah. All right. Well, I, I was like, obviously- well, let, 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 To make this less difficult, why don't you pick, do you want to say like junior high aged? Yeah, like I, I think I'm a later Gen X than you, but like it was, I was on the, the I feel Dr- like it was drunk on the driving, the, drunk driving, drugs, dr- especially drugs is the big pot. One. Remember the whole peer pressure drugs discussion? Oh, yeah, a thousand percent. I'm just trying to Saves. think of what the what the like known bugaboos were. Yeah. And, and the idea that like, oh, if these people are pressuring you into doing this thing, they're not really your friends and blah, blah, blah. And how that message yeah. did not resonate <laughs> with children, to say the least. Right. Mm. It just. And, and what you're telling you, can't, you cannot make an immortal person fear death just because you're right. terrified. And, of but it. it's also the lesson you just said that, that adults hopefully eventually learn of who you surround yourself with affecting how you feel about yourself and setting boundaries is actually a really difficult lesson for people to learn, let alone kids. And kids yeah. are extremely ill-equipped to understand that lesson, right? Because mm-hmm. so much of their life revolves around, you know, cleaving to social groups for reasons that have nothing to do with the fact of whether or not that person's going to coerce you into taking heroin, right? That's like, but that's no, just, fine. Just anybody, anybody who would let you sit at the lunch table is... Exactly. In fact, yeah. the fact that, that person is going to make me take heroin is why I want to hang out with them. They're so cool. <laughs> it's like, yeah. in that mindset, Absolutely. making that person understand the nuanced thing that you just described. I, I, remember, like, I remember when I learned that this one girl, Lisa, she was really cute. Um, Lisa, when we were in eighth grade, so 14... Um, when we were in eighth grade, the 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 scuttlebutt was, and what what was known, like if you went to the to Congress skating rink on Saturday night, you would see Lisa there with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend was nineteen years old, and we thought Lisa was so freaking cool because she had a nineteen year old boyfriend. You don't look at that as like being a person in your twenties. Going, let's say you're twenty five, and you go, wait a minute. You say to a nineteen year old person, you have a girlfriend who's fourteen. When you look at it, you know what I'm saying? You're looking mm-hmm. at different ends of the telescope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's exactly what, and that's why, that's why it's so difficult to, to kids to get that. But yes, you would hope part of it. Kids, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're hoping your kids get that sooner rather than later, but it is actually a difficult thing to really grok. Thank you for um, hearing me. Give me yours. What's your last one? So the, the more literal interpretation of what thing from your childhood do you wish your kids had had? This sounds materialistic, but it's really, it's kind of probably, I mean, I'm stealing your scarcity thing. I wish my kids had any single possession I cared about as much as my uh, 1984 Californian mongoose BMX bike, mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't. Mostly so, because- something, something you treasure 
take care of and uh, yeah, so, something I, that, I, just so you know i don't think we're being old men here i know what you're saying there's a difference between you don't take care of the things i buy you that you never asked for that's mm -hmm. different from like preciousness like is there anything in their life where they would be inconsolable especially if they unintentionally like like yeah, you know the right. way that a little kid would like lose a stuffed animal and be like out like you know knuffle bunny you'd be like they'd be like out of their mind knuffle bunny yeah i think you mean knuffle bunny is it you don't say the k no <laughs> or a knuffle so bunny household um uh, yeah you know, so like, hey wait can i tell you my favorite line from that book right okay i love i love i love when she yells knuffle bunny but you know what else i love when the narrator says she went boneless <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> Such a she good went book. boneless. Yep. She went. I loved reading that book. It's a good book. She went boneless. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Something. Something that you. Uh, something that you treasure and take and, care and of, like, like your mongoose. Like, this is why it gets into the scarcity thing of like something. For the example of my, of my mongoose thing is something that I never expected to ever be able to own because we weren't the type of family that could afford a mongoose because everyone knows a mongoose is the really expensive BMX bike and what kind of family is going to buy their kids such an expensive thing? It's just a bicycle. I've already got a BMX bike. So there's well, that bought, aspect to it. They bought it for the right. Yeah. The, kid, the idea that you had written off the idea that you would ever kind of like how. You know, you know, kids write off the idea. My parents are not going to buy me a Lamborghini. Like you just know that's not going to happen. It's stupid. But you still have a poster of a Lamborghini on your wall. Well, what if you woke up on Christmas morning and you had a Lamborghini and oh, you were gosh. allowed to drive it on the road? Right. That's what my my mongoose was like. And because I, you know, my, my kids have been raised in an environment where there's nothing that they want that we can't afford to get them, which is great. Isn't that great for my kids? It means they missed out on the experience right. of yeah. of ruling out things that they they can't get well, that and other stuff kids like might lose, have. If you lose this, we can't replace it. Yeah. Like that but, was understood for anything I own. Sure. That there was are a lot of things where I preemptively like, like, bought a replacement. For that was understood for hooded jackets, let alone you know, oh, expensive. Oh, we got you a winter coat. Where is it? <laughs> yeah. So, like, so the, the key fact of like this is like, unlike a Lamborghini, other kids could have this. I knew kids who had mongooses, but I also right. knew that I would never have one. And I wanted one so bad because, as aforementioned, my entire life was revolving around the BMX bike. And that was the good well, BMX the, bike the, to Just have. The, the mobility inside of your free range childhood, having the mobility to get from here to there, your, and, your bike and was I'm, your passport. Yeah. And because I'm an Apple nerd, I understood the difference between a mongoose and what I believe. I think I had a Huffy was my BMX bike. Not the same thing for sure. Um, and when I got the mongoose, A, shocking that I got it because I never expected to have it. And B, it was all that I thought it would be and more. It was like, oh, you know, man. being able to appreciate how much better this product was than the one that cost a quarter as much. Yeah. It really was more than four times better. And I treasured it so much and I took care of it and I repaired it and oiled it and polished it and, you know, when I when it you know fell down or got hit by a car or something you know buy new parts and bring it like I've still got it in my basement I literally still have it in my basement you're kidding and me and there's and there is nothing my kids have ever owned with the possible right. exception of maybe like my son's iPad and my daughter's phone but even that it was just expected that they would get it so it's not quite the same they and, never had that experience. you're being very cool about not being defensive about this preemptively in the way that I would but I just I want to be defensive on your behalf. If I understand what you're saying, because I think it's at least what I'm thinking, this is not about saying, hey, these kids today don't appreciate things. Mm -hmm. It's more the... The joy. The, the, well, the aperture that lets you get to appreciating preciousness necessarily requires scarcity. Like, if if you know, it's nobody walks into a bathroom in the middle of a movie. You'll see you go to the bathroom and, and you go there and you wash your hands. Nobody's sad about that paper towel. I know that sounds extreme. If John's mongoose went away, he would be sad. There's some, there's things in between. 
But it's that idea, like you, I think you really kind of nailed it with the Lamborghini thing. You never thought you would get this. It was like a miracle. And then it, it really literally showed up on Christmas, like in like oh, in the movie. So cool. You know, when the thing yeah. it was just it was as as they said the line from the Christmas story that I repeat, the greatest Christmas present I ever ever received and ever would receive. That was my uh, mongoose bike. That's why I still have it. I, of course, I had my kids, you know, hey, you want to try to ride it or whatever? None of them were interested at all. Yeah, my kid has never had but, any but yeah, interest like, in learning to ride but, a bike. And, and, at like all. you said, it's not not that I wish that they had scarcity or that mm-hmm. they don't appreciate things. I wish they had experienced again, I wish they experienced the joy. The, the constant sustained joy that that material possession gave me. And mm-hmm. I, as you said, they can't really experience that joy without the scarcity. And I'm not going to say deprivation because it's not like I was deprived of anything as a child, but that, but that but whole idea. But it is idea. different. I mean, it's, I, and I'll, I'll even give a, an even more controversial, you know, valence of here, which is that I think in some ways, God, I'm going to get killed for this. I hope Roderick never hears this. The ways that we demand kids share what we think are our values. Merlin, why would you say that? Because you don't know what your values are a lot of the time. All you know is how what you want your kids to look like. You know how you want them to act, and you know what you can't possibly tolerate them thinking, being, doing, or having, right? And so you end up putting all of your straight onto that kid. I just see it all the time. And in this instance, like, I'll tell you, man, the idea that your kids aren't anxious about everything well, I mean, on the one hand, what does your son say? I want to be careful with it. There's that aspect, haha. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I think there's that. That's not unwholesome. You don't want. You don't want to be like again, righteous gemstones. You don't want to be like Judy going, oh, I've already got three of this Barbie dream house or whatever. You know, I'm not saying like that, but like, it's funny. Okay, let me let me give you a super big pattern, and I'm gonna shut up. Which is that if I know there's something in me that's a been a negative um, habit or habit of habit of mind, like whatever it is. And I see that my kid doesn't like inexplicably, improbably, my kid doesn't have that. There was a time. Well, uh, I mean, this is partly true. It's mostly true. There was a time in my life when I would go, wow, now it's my job for the rest of the day to make my kid anxious about that thing. I'm anxious about that thing. So this kid needs to be anxious about it. You need to worry about the things that I tell you to worry about. Side note, be careful about the number of people who want to tell you what to be scared about in life. Do you follow, though? Like, I can't make that kid have my hangups, and there is something to be learned from what your kid doesn't have hangups about. So I'm not saying that, oh, you know, your kid never had the equivalent of a mongoose bike, and, and you know, and because there's are spoiled brats or whatever. But I do think there's something wholesome about not being quite so emotionally wound up in possessions. And maybe that's because it came to these kids easily and they didn't have to work for anything or mow lawns. But like, I am happy to have a kid. We're not rich, man. Not by a long shot, right? We're we're super not rich. But I also feel like if whatever hangups I've passed on, I don't think my kid has that hangup. And I, I celebrate that. Oh, look at your bike. <gasps> that's, not, I mean, that's not literally my bike. That is, that is well, the no, same, but same model. Make and model yeah. Oh, you got to put this in notes. Oh my God. This is so badass. Look at that shaft, the core, what's called crank, uh, the crankshaft or whatever, the um, big sprocket in the middle where the pedals are. Mm-hmm. Dang, this looks deluxe. The thing I, the thing I had expressed about this, this bike is that like just how much you would think, like, so there's pedals in a chain. The and wheels are so wheel. little versus the height. It's interesting. Yeah, like, like how, like how different could it be? My Huffy had pedals in a chain and a wheel and like how different could it be to turn these pedals and turn those pedals? Did you have not the Santa Fe was the 10 speed. 
Did, did you, you had the, the Huffy BMX that everybody had? I, it was, no, I didn't have the Huffy BMX. I had a worse Huffy than everyone else had. Mine had the, it, it wasn't a banana seat, but it was like the, they kind of machoed the banana seat where yeah, it, didn't, yeah. it didn't curve it made up it like a little end. wider probably. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like, it was like wide and long, but not as long as a banana seat and didn't curl up at the end. It was terrible, but it was, it was like it, this, this bike, this mongoose has like ball bearings on everything. And well, I mean, feels, this, is, this is like getting completely different equipment. It, it feels like every part of it is like machined to like yeah, a, a, yeah, an yeah, inch yeah. of its life and well-oiled. And the the, the amount of uh, energy loss to friction is like a hundred times less than, than on the Huffy. It was just phenomenal. It made you feel like you were flying. Was, was, that, was, that, was that seat hard on your taint? Uh, not when you're a kid. It was yeah. hard plastic seat. It's lightweight. Don't you understand? It's lightweight. I understand. You want to minimize weight. Yeah, no, like I... This. I fell so many times in this bicycle yeah when you're a kid you're made of rubber did this have the little things i don't see it on this model no did you have this, the was, things this on... was just this was just oh. before pegs how did you know what i was gonna say because i know i'm there i know about being and the best oh, thing about this bike is kind of like weird, this was john this, was I weird. Think this predates power rangers but this bike came in what you see is black which is the color i had it also came in blue and red and uh oh. blue and red maybe there's another color and in the blue and red ones, the tires were red on the red one. The tires were blue on the blue one. It was so well. You know what else was happening? There was around. so Power Rangers. Other th- well, there's a lot. There's a very USA thing going on. You had Bruce Springsteen that year, but that was the year of the LA Olympics. Yeah. So you know what I'm saying? Like I'm not saying, but I'm like it's like with the bicentennial where people started doing mm-hmm. stuff about the bicentennial starting in like 1973 or four. Like I I wonder if those red and blue options had something to do with like the surge of like USA stuff in the Olympics. Yeah, I think this is, let me, so many of these are modified after the fact, so it's hard to say, but I'm just going to send this you one picture. This looks like a really nice bike. Take, take, a, take a picture of the blue one. Like, it really was just, like, right out of, like, a, an anime show or whatever that you could have color. And I had friends who had, like, the blue one and the red one. There was also Diamondback, which is a competing super Oh, no, super no, no. Brand. Oh, that is garish. Yeah, oh, the red one was like that, but in red. Oh, yeah, that, no, not, it's like you're, you're, you, you've you got the, you got the, um, the aesthetic of, like, a PT but, but do Cruiser. You see how the, the tires and, and the gear and the pads and yeah. the seat, everything, it was so color match, color coordinated. It was, obviously, the black one is the best. I mean, I had the best one. No, no, the thing is, like, having done some kinds of work in the past, the coordination of different teams on putting this together is pretty great. Because that, that involves branding stuff, that involves materials. Right? Like, how are you going to get blue tires? Like, how are you going to do that? Exactly. And the blue tires need to be the same color as the seat. Well, could it be a little different? No. Mm -hmm. They need to be exact. Do you have any idea how many people were involved in making this bike? It's wild. I mean, this was an extremely expensive bike. I should do the math on how much it costs in today's dollars. I haven't haven't asked, but yeah. So, but you said 4X. So that sounds like a pretty nice bike. It was was ridiculous. And again, I already had had a perfectly good bike. So, yeah. Anyway, like I said, the, the thing I want my kids to experience is just the joy part of it, just the, the sure, yeah. sheer joy, not the materialistic, greedy joy, because I was still young enough that I didn't really think about the price. I just knew this is not a thing that you're going to ever own. But like, it wasn't like I was lording it over my friends as look at this expensive thing. The joy of riding that bike, of having yeah. a really good bike. When a bike is that important to you and you have a really good one, just the joy of using it. I feel the same, kind of the same way about my skis, although I was older then, of having, you know, the best skis well, that I, I mean, could this, get. This is know. kind of random, but guitars can be like that exactly playing a really like good you guitar like, how much a lot of kids like like me i had play. used everything forever and i learned to play guitar the i mean the it's like the, the action was not even inconsistent in the same consistent way like mm-hmm. it was very difficult to keep in tune the saddles would pop and anyways but then you somebody's like oh you're playing les paul no no les paul the hand you put you strap on a les paul and you're like wait a minute it's this easy 
to play these notes Mm -hmm. versus feeling like you're doing like aerobic exercise to do Mm -hmm. anything above the sixth fret. You know, there's not similar where you're like, oh my God, this is such a different experience. And that goes probably, I'm obviously automobiles like that. For me, the difference between like the rental electric bikes and my electric bike, Mm -hmm. like big difference. Yeah. Fit and finish. And yeah, no, I take, I take your meaning, but I don't know. It's, I'm so obsessed with trying not to put my business on other people in general, really. Like, I know it's impossible, but like to not be burdening other people with like what vexes me. And like, uh, I'm trying to really look at things that seem off to me. I try to look at something that feels off and like really try to see, you know, this is this, like see it for what it is rather than just going, oh, I had this rote reaction like somewhere near my brainstem that comes out of every experience I've ever had. Here's the cautious thing to say. Here's the dumb dad thing to say. And like, I really have started trying to, when I say fight that, I mean, the truth is once you start realizing how often you do it, it's less difficult to fight because you don't say stupid crap in this first place. But do you ever think that though? Are there things where you, I mean, I'm not trying to make this cute and turn it into like a Cosby, you know, thing, but like, as in the kids part, not the drugs and drinks part. Do your kids ever surprise you with something where you go, oh, I, I might have had that wrong. I know, I know you're better than them in video games and Photoshop and all of those things, but honestly, are there ever moments where you're like, I learned a little bit from this experience? I mean, yeah, all the time. That's the whole experience of parenting is learning. I don't, think, I don't think that's widely discussed by people outside of cute stories. Yeah, I mean, that's because that's the thing about, I mean, parenting, it's the, the, the I mean, I guess for you with, with just the one kid, like by the time you learn anything, it's like, I'll do this right with the next kid. There is no next. Kid. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like it's like your, your practice kid. Yeah. yeah. And I've got two of them and I still feel the same thing. It's like you finally learn an important lesson and you're like, that will come in handy the next time I have to raise a kid this age. And like, oh, that's not going to happen again. <laughs> Even when I, if I would learn something in the older kid, it's like, now I can apply this lesson to the younger sometimes. But sometimes you realize you missed the window for the younger kid, too. It's it's the type you know, parenting is the type of thing where by the by the and what time if you like the second one better, you know, by the time you're done with it, you know so much more than when you started. And mostly that knowledge is yeah. useless because because then you get grandkids and you're not. Look, look, the whole at, point look, is, Ch- look at Chuck and Jimmy. You, like, yeah, Chuck, like, did, Chuck did all the work, work really hard. And Slip and Jimmy is out there and like and, and that's and no spoilers, but that's his mother's last word. That's Jimmy's yeah. name. And then, and then, so by the time you have all this knowledge, it's like, oh, well, you know, I can't use it anymore because I don't have kids. It's like, but I'll use this knowledge when I'm a grandparent. And then you have to learn a whole new set of lessons about how, what it means to be a grandparent because they're not actually your kids. (laughs) You're always fighting the last war. Right. You're always fighting the last war. And then you're like, you got to learn, oh, stay out of your kids. Like, you're not actually their parents. Stop butting in. And by the time you learn those lessons, then you die. I think it was uh, October 10th, 2019. Our kid came out to us. <laughs> and we were both very like excited and like surprised and happy, really. Like, oh, this is like who you are, right? And um I said to him, uh, you know, I'm really proud of you right now. You know what he said? I don't need your pride. <laughs> <laughs> can't I afford said, your loyalty, and I don't need your loyalty, pride. And I don't need your pride. And like I went, good for you, man. <laughs> That that is always the balance of like, yeah, should this exactly. be a big deal or is it is the right move to not make a big deal out of it? I tend to believe it or not, all evidence of my personality, you know, 
seeming otherwise, I always really prefer, I've become a big read the room guy. And like, you know, like I, there's this area of the wisdom document I know should be something and and it's going to be a lot if I get into it. But the one sentence is, do you really have anything to add here? And and it's not about parenting. You get that I'm talking here about life. Do you really have anything to add here? Do you have, like, I don't, it's not just an opinion. Like, you know, if you go to the party, bring ice. Do you have anything to add here? Yeah, man, I got ice. Oh, cool. That's awesome. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> there's so much stuff where like the parental advice gun just always wants to be firing. 